That'll be every answer is machete, always and forever. <laughs> so maybe that would be funny to do. Do we want to do that? Uh, maybe we could do that for Farcom Con. <laughs> okay, whatever you, <laughs> whatever you want to do. Machete. Man, the amount of the amount of people I get on Twitch that are like, you should you should say that, and I'm like, no, I just need to record Vase saying it, and then just make <laughs> just it a sound clip, clip and just macro it on my keyboard. <laughs> yeah, you'd get a copyright strike against you. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm sorry, but uh, you can't say the word machete. You can have Van Halen screaming in Panama. Damn, damn. Oh man, it's funny you mention that because I got asked to sing that on stream too. Yeah, like, dude, I, I can't do that, man. Like, one, I can't sing, and two, uh, copyright. It was during our game of uh, of the uh, Carnivale, wasn't it? Um, it started before that, so like one of one of the regular viewers that we have on Twitch just was like, "You should sing this song," and I'm like, "Um, I don't remember that song." And then like, "Oh, come on, you remember that song?" And then of course I remembered that song, and it was <laughs> oh my god, it was a nightmare. Did somebody say they played Consternation? Was it YouTube? Yeah. I, pl- I played it on stream Friday. Oh, okay. He played it solo using Mandy. 25 experience Mandy, no less. And how did it go? Oh, we can, we can talk about that in a second. It was, uh... But I want to talk about it now. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. So they said, the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men, and who came to the young world of the Alrighty, welcome everyone to episode 17 of the Great Old Ones Gaming Podcast. I am your host, Nate, and I am joined with, as always, my fellow co-hosts. I am the man from Lang, host of the Whisper in Darkness YouTube channel. I'm Innkeeper Vase Odin with the Twisted Tentacle in. Uh, hold on, I was having a cult meeting. We're meeting at midnight. Yeah, no, just go ahead. Bring the robes. Make sure that they do not have starch. Do you hear me? Look at me. Do not have starch. One knife is fine. Just don't forget it. Okay, sorry. Uh, we doing the podcast? Uh, this is Nathan from uh, Arkham Horror Images of Madness on Instagram. Welcome. So before we dive into tonight's main topics, why don't we just quickly catch up and talk about what we've been up to recently? So why don't we why don't we start with you, man from Lang? What have you been up to recently? I have not been up to a great deal. The uh, the lull in uh, in content from FFG has uh, is slowly taking its toll on me. So I'm waiting for August, which is when all the goodies will drop. So I've uh, just been working on catching up on my reviews and got some playthroughs that I need to record, and so I'll be doing that over the next couple weeks. And what about you, Vase? What have you been up to recently? Oh, quite a bit, actually. I've been uh, prepping for Farcom Con, which we're going to talk about later in the episode, and working 
finally finishing my scenarios. So I think I've completed the the first one that I made, and I am almost ready for playtest for the first part of the new trilogy that I'm working on. So very so excited. excited. Hell yeah. I'm, dude, it's been... I had kind of a sudden burst of inspiration after a huge lull <laughs> this year, but uh, it's when been fun. When you say man. huge lull, do you mean huge L-U-L-L or L-O-L? Both. It was a lull with a lull after. It was really, really trippy. And also played uh, Carnivale of Spiders with with Nate and uh, Metastrophic, as well as uh, JP from... Uh, Northern Lights over Arkham. It was super fun. One of the best games of Arkham that that I've played. Yeah, that was, was that was a great game. It was a good group of people. It was a great great amount of teamwork, and uh, we really kicked that scenario's ass. Um, but it was fun doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I've been up to. What about you? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna dodge that question and ask Nathan what he's been up to recently, since we haven't chatted in a couple weeks. This is true, man. Uh, you know, it's amazing how just things are constantly changing with COVID. Uh, the game store has just been morphing and, and we're adapting. And now that we've adapted, it looks like everything might get closed down again because of, you know, not doing it right the first time. So uh, a lot of my focus has been working with retail and working with the public. Uh, and we just hired on a, a regional manager because we're thinking about expanding our store from one store to like three. So you never oh, know. That's exciting. It, and nothing's confirmed. So don't quote me, but um, there's always opportunities out there in the wing and we'll see what happens. But uh, on a gaming level, uh, I've really been digging in pretty hardcore to Lord of the Rings, which is funny that I'm mentioning a game that's almost 11 years old. Uh, Man from Lang. Does that sound right? Yeah. About that. Um, but I mean, I really love the Lord of the Rings lore and I like seeing the connection between Arkham's creation and Matt Newman. Matt Newman came on, uh, as a cre- content creator with FFG for Lord of the Rings, uh, after four years that it had been out. So he, he, you know, was able to cut his teeth for several years before then coming to Arkham. So I've been playing a lot of that. I've been keeping up with my packs for Marvel Champions, but I haven't been playing it as much. Um, I played some really fun Arkham recently. God, what did we do? We did several games right in a row, but then we're going to be doing The Blob because it just got released uh, Monday. A very small group of people. So, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Nice, nice. Have you um, have you had the chance to play Blob yet, or...? I did not. Uh-uh, no, this will be my first time. I remember I set up at my uh, Arkham, pardon me, on my, the Great Old Ones Gaming Arkham Beneath the Waves that we had in 2018. 19? I can't remember anymore. Yeah, you're right, 19, but man, we, we didn't get this one. Although, I do not want any merchandise that said Arkham Horror Beneath the Waves 2020, because that would be good to forget the 2020 happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, crazy so maybe I'll just, you know, but we're looking at maybe next year if people are, you know, put out. Um, so I set up the tables and had the jello and uh, the bright green tablecloths and, and stuff. And I know people enjoyed it. And we played, I think, eight, eight people at a time. So basically two pods of people. 
but I didn't get a chance to play it yet. So tomorrow, Monday, will be my first time. Nice. Yeah. Is Blob playable solo? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the, so there's actually there's two different versions of the Blob. Spoilers. Um, so there's one that's like specifically meant for like an ep- what they call mul- epic multiplayer, and then there's like a standalone version of the Blob in the agenda deck. Oh, the, the creature itself, the Blob. Yes. Yes. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, it's like it's set up slightly differently if you play it in standalone, but uh, by and large, it's basically the same scenario. So. It's fun, Nathan. You'll be you'll be in for a treat. It's oh, fun. I'm looking forward to it. But also, this is kind of funny. So we got in like 50 copies of the Blob that ate everything or something, and uh, I already have a copy because um, I had someone bring it back from Gen Con. But then it was kind of funny because um, people all know that I work with that I push Arkham all the time. We sell a lot of it. But I went from, uh, I'm not going to get any copies to, okay, well, someone needs me to pick up a copy. Someone else needs me to pick up their copy. I'm going to see them soon. Uh, okay, I'm just going to get a copy for a backup. Oh, I'm going to get a copy to give away on the you know the Facebook group that I help moderate. Somebody walked in that just got engaged, and they play Arkham. And I was like, here, here's a copy of the book. So I went from getting zero to getting like five in all of 10 minutes and the staff were just like rolling their eyes at me. I'm like, what? I didn't plan on this. <laughs> uh, awesome. Just, it's a wonderful present, you know, whatever. And Nathan, what's your, um, what are people's impressions about blob that have, that have played it? Would you say? Honestly, because it just released finally, I think yesterday officially, it, I've been in an all selling, no feedback, uh, situation. Gotcha. So okay. I, I don't have any input yet. We will come back to that. Yeah, we'll put a pin on that, and I'll I'll ask you maybe next episode. Uh, but as far as me, I've been I've been streaming a lot on Twitch lately since I'm still currently unemployed. It's hard to hard to cater uh, for large groups of people when there is a statewide ban on having large groups of people. So uh, yeah, so I've been streaming on Twitch, and we recently hit affiliate on our Twitch. So as uh, as Vase alluded to earlier, we did a special a special custom scenario that Metastrophic put together, uh, Carnival of Spiders, which is not really so much a custom scenario in and of itself, but it's more, it's a variation on, on Carnivale itself. So instead of fighting whatever, whatever the ancient one's name is in the original one, I think, I think Scott called it Shaniqua. Um, you instead, you instead battle Atlaknacha, and he he also went through the trouble of like changing a couple of the agenda cards and some of the encounter sets as well to to further push the theme of Atlaknacha. And yeah, that was that was super fun. Yeah, it was a it was a great time. Yeah, you played Vase. You played like a full on support Carolyn deck that did some serious work. Yeah, I very rarely get to build her as a support character since I mostly play solo. So it was really cool to see her in action doing that and not not supporting what people would think, which is just healing horror, but straight up like bashing the encounter deck over the head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, for real. And like not even just healing horror, but you just you tanked so much damage between... Oh, what is that new card that you played in your deck? Uh, Spiritual Resolve? Spiritual Resolve, yeah. And, yeah, that um, card was super good for you. Yeah, and um, Solemn Vow with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was cool. It, I I thought that uh, you know it may or may not work as intended, but it worked really well. Like it, the deck was was a lot of fun to play. 
just seeing everyone kind of focus on what they do best and not get bogged down by the encounter deck was was really fun. And dude, and your Tony deck. First of all, <laughs> your your Italian Tony. I can't wait for Farcom Con again. We'll talk about that later, but I can't wait till your entire Italian episode with who, is it Scott? You're doing it with from the Ghostbusters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and are you using the same deck? I think he plays Tony, and I play Tommy. Oh, okay. I, I I'm not sure. We haven't we haven't discussed the full details of it, but you know, since Scott is kind of the progenitor of that meme with tink tank tony we uh yeah i don't even remember exactly how that devolved i think it was just like a conversation on discord and we're like we should do this and then we did it <laughs> it's just been like a meme ever since dude i was cracking up so much man just i mean you could be saying like the the most like simplest i'm moving over to this location but because you said it with <laughs> I was just like, I literally almost spat out my drink at the time. <laughs> it was so funny, man. And that oh, deck was man. ridiculous, dude. That Tony built in that way can do some serious damage, man. Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. Um, there was one point um, when we were fighting out Lachnacha herself that... Oh man, I needed to deal six damage with the shotgun and ended up like, oh man, it was so epic. Like pulling pulling an elder sign and dealing like eighteen points of damage in a single turn. Oh, oh man, man. So good. I mean, what's better than one shotgun? Two shotguns. Yeah. Uh, good times. Good times. But um, but yeah. Since since we kind of alluded to Farcom, why don't we go ahead and dive into our main topics? So starting with FarcomCon 2020, for those who are unaware, um, the Mythos Busters, along with the, I think it's the living or cooperative card game community, we'll have we'll have links to them in the show notes, but but they've decided to go ahead and put together a remote Gen Con, so to speak. So so FarcomCon 2020 is all Arkham all the time for four days, essentially. Uh, a bunch of the community has gotten together, and they're going to be hosting various events. And, of course, we were asked to host a few events ourselves. So uh, why, don't, why don't we go ahead and just kind of talk about the events that we're going to be hosting. So we're, we're obviously we're going to be doing a live show with Q&A and a game show yeah. live on our Twitch, which will be exciting. So if listeners, if you want to submit questions, you can either submit them in our Discord server, or you can email uh, Carolyn Fern, the botanist at gmail.com, and we will we will kind of curate a list of questions, and we will we will be answering them on stream, kind of like a an AMA sort of style episode. Yeah, and the game show is going to be awesome. Yes, yes, we have something very special planned for the for the game show. And then one of our other events is Pikmin's Chaos Bag. So Vase, that's kind of that was kind of your brainchild so why don't you go ahead and kind of discuss so pikmin's chaos bag uh is uh basically we're we're getting a short list of investigators and drawing maybe three or four of them and then drawing an available card from their card pool as well as an encounter card and people can get inspiration from what was drawn and make some kind of artistic interpretation of this of the scene that's in their head so as an example Let's say uh, you pick uh, Wendy. Let's say Wendy's pulled along with the um, Tennessee Sour Mash and then um, Entombed or something. So 
people would interpret that, make artwork or do like a skit on YouTube or, you know, set up minis or anything. They can really do anything that's artistic, make a song out of it. But basically that the cards are going to be drawn randomly by celebrity uh, host or celebrity guest, probably just us. (laughs) Uh, And we'll have like three or four investigators or three or four different scenes that people can pick from. And then throughout, throughout the convention, we're going to be spotlighting different submissions. And then uh, the community will vote on a, on a winner. So the funniest or most inventive one will get a copy of all of the new investigator decks, which is pretty cool. So it's kind of the contest that we're running for the Farcom con. Um, but I, I really am excited to see what people come up with because there can be some really, really funny things that, that come out of this. And it's all it's going to be somewhat random, so that's going to be also interesting what comes out. Yeah, and I love the um, the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Pickman's model, uh, and I know you've really supported the artists from that. So really cool idea. Thank you for doing that, basically. Yeah, yeah, the, that's where I got inspiration from. Thanks for mentioning it, Nathan. It's uh, I go to the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival every year, and they have... In the film festival, it's more like a convention, and they have like little things like that too. And so they'll have what they call Pickman's Apprentice, where they'll get the audience to kind of pick from a list of things, and it'll be somewhat random as well. Uh, and then they'll have these really good artists just draw up something out of that scenario. So they'll had, I think last year it was like a Shoggoth in love or something like that. Shoggoth love and something <laughs> else. And so the artists had to make their, some, some people made like sculptures of it. Some people made a drawing. It was really cool. They do it every year. And uh, Dave Correa, who is one of my favorite Lovecraftian artists, um, he he participates every year, and he always comes out with some awesome stuff for it too. But that that was the inspiration for this. So I'm like, well, we can do something similar, but with Arkham. So we'll draw an investigator, one of their cards, and an encounter card, and see what kind of crazy, funny stuff comes out of it. I mean, I just imagine Shugoth's in love with like somebody like holding two Shugoth minis and just trying to like make them kiss. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Dave Correa actually uh, made a sculpture, and it was a Shugoth holding the hand of a little girl, and it was. It was cute and it was hilarious. It was really, it was really funny. <laughs> it's also kind of creepy. Yeah, yeah, creepy as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then the other event that we're going to be hosting as a podcast is uh, a Pulp Cthulhu one shot that I've been working on, based on the first two scenarios of the Forgotten Age. So uh, I know Vase, you're going to be recreating Father Mateo for Pulp Cthulhu. So that's going to be that'll be a lot of fun. And we also will have two to three available spots. I know, Man from Ling, you said, unfortunately, you'll have to work during during the time that we'll be streaming that event. So that's that's unfortunate to hear. But but obviously there's a spot available for Nathan if he so chooses. And then we'll have two available spots because I'd like to have a party of four to recreate the full multiplayer experience for um, for Arkham Horror into Pulp Cthulhu. You said party of four, like a fellowship? <laughs> Isn't the fellowship like nine plus people? You know, okay, it's comments like that that cause me not to send you <laughs> any more birthday cards. Just shove it. For those who don't know what Pulp Cthulhu is, can you uh, kind of briefly go over that? Sure, absolutely. So Pulp Cthulhu is a variant of the Call of Cthulhu RPG that's more based around, as the name implies, pulp action. And I figured that that was a very fitting uh 
rules variant to play the Forgotten Age in, as the Forgotten Age, um, for those who, who haven't played it, is a very uh, Indiana Jones-esque style adventure into the into the Mexican jungle. So I, I'm really excited to, to see how it goes, and patrons of the show, I will be uh, giving out a, a free copy on our Patreon for, for people that are interested. So it'll, it'll have all of my various notes and, and the characters that we use to, to play the scenario itself. So if you're interested in playing that or running it for your own group, then that'll be available to you on our Patreon. And if it's successful, maybe you can do another one for the train for the Mis- or what is it? Miskatonic express Essex County, Essex County express. That would be fitting for Polkathulu, right? That would be that'd be interesting. Hold on, hold on. Just the visual of that would be awesome, right? Like, what what's up with uh, this building looking like something just plowed through it? <laughs> oh well, we had somebody from Panama mispronounce <laughs> uh, one of the scenario packs, so this train just hurdles through the middle of the quad. Jazz Molly, haven't seen him since, but uh, <laughs> you know, good times. So I'm really excited to see how it goes out. I've been doing a, a lot of work kind of behind the scenes to to create some additional ambiance. I've made some sound files. I'm gathering up some images and and hopefully it'll be it'll be a lot of fun to watch. Um, watching uh, classic Arkham stories being told in a different medium. But apart from our events, uh, I know we, uh, me, Vase, and Man from Lang are also doing individual events. Uh, throughout the course of the four days as well. Uh, Man from Lang, I know you're doing various streams, and there isn't much detail about them currently, but um, do you have any to light to shed on, on what you'll be doing? Uh, not quite yet. I'm, I'm working, uh, we were chatting last night about, uh, since I won't be able to participate in the one-shot, I may be running a one-shot of my own for a uh, for my my D&D group which would be uh which I'll be streaming which would be cool just because they uh they don't play Arkham so it would be uh, the scenario would be completely fresh for them so uh, I'm just uh getting their input on that and so far it's been positive so that seems like it uh, will happen um and then uh Still working on what else I'm going to do. My the I mean my channel is sort of video related, so it's it's uh, I'm finding it difficult to find ideas to do besides stream. So I'll be streaming for at least probably be doing uh, if we do the scenario, it will be on the Thursday, and then uh, I'll be streaming Friday, Saturday, and Sunday as well. And uh, there I know there the one thing I can reveal is there will be giveaways. So uh, if uh, people are interested in uh, picking themselves up some some cool stuff, they can uh, make sure they tune in. And we'll be doing a giveaway as well. I ordered an extra copy of Barkham. So we'll be at some point during the weekend, we'll be giving away a copy of Barkham Horror. So so stay tuned for further details on that giveaway. And Vasey, you're doing some individual events as well, correct? Um, For the most part, um, the... uh the scenario I was talking about earlier, I was uh, finally finishing the scenario that I've been working on since early last year. Uh, and I've uploaded it to TTS. That's tabletop simulator for those who are not in the know. Um, and I'm trying to teach myself how to be quick at tabletop simulator so that I can stream it. Um, 
during the con. I mean, either way, I'm playing the scenario, whether it's live cards. I'd prefer to stream it because it's easier for people to see and read the cards and all that. Um, you don't have the same issues as you do with cameras. So I'm trying to get better at TTS. I, I think I'm getting there. Um, but I'm, I plan on releasing the TTS version probably early in the week because I understand that you know some people do, some people are very sensitive about spoilers, so they're not going to tune in because they don't want to be spoiled. So I understand that. So I might release it early. That way people can then play it and then they can watch it and see if maybe they did something wrong or can clarify some things. Um, but yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play my scenario and then do a Q&A right after. And that's mostly what, I, what I'll be doing individually. Can you, res- can you resign first turn? You cannot resign first turn. Oh. Yeah. You, Your scenario sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I should add that in there. <laughs> just put it on the start. Just put it on the first location card. It'll be an encounter card. You draw the encounter card. <laughs> you draw the encounter card, take a willpower test. If you fail, you must resign. That would actually be a pretty interesting encounter card. I don't know how you would balance that at all, but that would be interesting. Yeah, and if you play a four-player game, then one of you resigns, like in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and you know, if, if I have time, maybe I'll give a sneak peek of the first part of the new trilogy that I'm working on. Um, which actually we will be giving a sneak peek for our Twitch channel here at the Great Old Ones in a little less than two weeks. So stay tuned for that too. Yeah, you can always stay updated on our Discord server. I'm pretty bad about updating our Twitter, so <laughs> so if you're if you're interested in updates, definitely hit up Discord. I'm pretty much on there all the time. So what are you doing? You didn't say what you were doing, Nate. Oh, right. Yeah, I should probably mention that. Um, So I've teamed up with a couple of different content creators to do events over the course of the weekend. I'll be doing a a Labyrinth of Lunacy run with Brandon and the other guys from Optimal Play, who are great. If you haven't checked them out, you should be sure to. I will absolutely be sure to link their content in the show notes of this episode. Uh, I have not played Labyrinths in a 12-player group since... um, since I've mostly play solo, it's hard to find another 11 players outside of online communities. So I'm really excited to to finally have that experience under my belt. And then, as Vase mentioned earlier, I'll be doing an event with Scott from the Mythos Busters called Italian Dress <laughs> which is um, he and I play Tony and Tommy, and we, we play through a scenario, and we talk in Brooklyn slash Boston accents the entire time, which is... <laughs> Uh, which is great fun. So uh, I'm not sure what scenario we'll be playing exactly. Maybe we'll be playing Consternation again, which hopefully doesn't go as uh, poorly as my solo run of that scenario did. Solo's more swingy too, though, so that's... Yeah, it also doesn't help when you draw like all but one or two enemies of the encounter <laughs> deck in like four turns. That was so brutal. oh man but i'm excited for farkham it's going to be a lot of fun and i think it's great that um that the mythos busters have put together this event dude it's amazing what they pulled off they got so many content creators they got the schedule going i mean it just they have a website dedicated to it it's um it's impressive that they were able to pull this off with such short amount of like planning yeah yeah big shout outs to everyone that'll be participating in the event i know that we have some some other content creators that'll be doing events as well. Um, 
Matastrophic, uh, Drawn to the Flame, JP. Big stupid grin. Uh, so it's really, it's going to be a lot of fun. I know a lot of them have put a lot of work into the events that they're going to be running as well. So so if you're curious, you can you can check out the Farkham website and you can register for the events that you want to watch. And we won't be mad if you don't watch our events, but uh, don't be surprised if Nathan comes to you in the night <laughs> wearing a robe and a ceremonial dagger. So. Uh, no Star I'm just I'm just saying. No Star Trek. Right, right, of course. Yeah, we we don't want any chafing in our in our dark robes. So, <laughs> so recently, the the Weaver of the Cosmos finally saw mass release in the United States and North the rest of North America, and and that wraps up the the Dream Eaters campaign. Um, have you guys had a chance to play through all the scenarios yet? No, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. I've still only played that first one. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got, you got to get on that. I know. I, you know what? I'm having finally more time. It's crazy how COVID, even though I was home all day, I just didn't have the time. I had other stuff happening. But, yeah. I feel you on that front, man. For yeah. sure. What about you guys? Man from Link. I have uh, I have played most of the Dream side. I have not played the Waking side. Those uh, I'll be doing uh, blind playthroughs of those, so that that should be interesting to say the least. The blind playthroughs usually go very badly, so I uh, <laughs> so we'll see how uh, Patrice does once we uh, once we get there. But I've. Uh, I, I've enjoyed the uh, I've enjoyed the dream side. What was your uh, favorite scenario of the ones you've played so far, Man from Lang? Uh, I think uh, of the ones I've played, I think Waking Nightmare is my favorite of the of the uh, the cycle so far. I've always had some some very uh, interesting games with that uh, with that particular scenario. The um, the first in the dream, I forget what it's called now. Beyond the Gates of Sleep, is that it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's good too. Um, I mean, so far all the the scenarios I've played have been have been pretty solid. Uh, I enjoyed uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Search for Gadath is kind of a an odd one for me. I I enjoy it, but it's it feels like a very long scenario. Yeah, it's interesting you point that out because. I played the I play so I've played through the campaign on stream since it's since it's been released and yeah I feel the same way about Search for Kadath like I I want to like it more than I do if that makes sense yeah initially I was really hyped about that scenario but uh, I've played it three times I think and uh, I'm basically i need to play it again for my for for my channel and it's every time i think about playing it i'm kind of like no not tonight because it's going to take me several hours to get through this and mm-hmm. and uh, i'm tired and to be fair it is it's supposed to be kind of an exhaustive questing just you know the search for it's not called the casual glancing you know all right let's do this up oh, now there it is all right good game pack it up yeah yeah, so I'm 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 kind of torn about it. I know it's uh, I I believe it's the scenario that uh, that I heard that uh, Matt Newman was having some trouble developing, uh, and 
and it needed some needed needed some reworking and whatnot and and so I sort of feel like it it comes off being a little long but it doesn't I I think it's long but when I compare it to something like um the secret name which seems like two scenarios in one long uh the search for Kadath doesn't come off as being quite that quite that exhaustive yeah i definitely agree with you there and i and i think search sort of comes off um after you've played it a couple times i mean you know the trick you you sort of know what tricks you need to do and which locations to flip so it's it's not as um i guess that tension isn't there you can say that a lot about um, a lot of the scenarios, but I feel like that one is uh, is uh, particularly bad for that. Yeah, I think what what I don't particularly care for in that scenario is just the constant like having to reset up the entire board when you move to various locations. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a a strike against it too. I mean, and I play on mostly on octagon, so I can. The the setup is fairly quick, and and I can't. I know when we played it uh, in the uh, four player survivor group, constantly having to reset up the the board, and make sure the board state was right with between four players online was uh, was tricky. Yeah, I had that. I had that issue even doing it on tabletop simulator, where most of the setup is automated for you, and it's it's still like pretty exhaustive. I think in my recent playthrough of it, it took almost two hours to play through it solo. Yeah. Holy what? Yeah, it's it's long, man. Damn. Yeah, it's a, it's a long scenario, and 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 that sort of deters me from from diving into it. Where where a scenario like uh, like Waking Nightmare to me feels like really just a very solid. A very solid Arkham scenario that has a lot of replayability because it can go so many different ways depending on on what happens. Yeah, I remember watching. Was it Jim you played through recently? It, it was Jim that I I I, I streamed a, a Chaos Ultimatum Jim game. Uh, I played Beyond the Gates of Sleep first, and uh, unfortunately my uh, computer crashed, so I was unable to complete that. So I decided to play Waking Nightmare 2, and uh, surprisingly, uh, Jim did extremely well in that. Probably the best I've ever (laughs) my best game of that scenario I've ever had, but I had 20 spiders on the table at at the end of the game, so that was... uh, that was quite uh, quite something. Were you were you on a constant constellation of the consternation or whatnot? <laughs> Twenty enemies on the table sounds like Nate's game. <laughs> they were all in one location, though. Oh my god! Yeah, they were. They were all. Uh, I, I can't exactly remember how it happened, but I drew the spider of Lang and ended up moving to one of the basement locations and dropping him there. And so the spider of Lang will pull spiders every turn. So every turn, I just kept pulling spiders from the encounter deck and dumping them into this one location. And then every turn, the spider of Lang, um, you add a swarm card, I think it is, for every spider. 
Yes. So, so the spider of Lang was pulling spiders that were pulling that were creating swarms. So each turn there was there were more and more spiders uh, in the room. But they because they don't have hunter or anything, they they're stuck there. Hmm. So by the by the time I finally beat the scenario, it was there were twenty there were nineteen spiders I think in that room, and then there was one other spider enemy on the table elsewhere jesus man talk about a swarm of spiders yeah i don't know if it's a it, if it's a legitimate strategy to pursue uh all the time but it seemed to make sense at the time and it actually worked out fairly well <laughs> so i assume that when we get uh, uh return to the waking nightmare there'll be some sort of uh, encounter card that uh lets those spiders hunt because if at, if at any time those spiders had moved i would have been cooked there would have been no no chance at all yeah I, I guess to kind of dive into the mechanics of that scenario a little bit i think one thing that they could change and spoilers is the the way that you close the infestation like there's that one bottleneck location that if you if you seal that location you can very easily contain the spread of the infestation yeah yeah i believe it's the stairwell I believe it's the stairway. If you if you can if you can seal the infestation at the stairwell, you're you're in pretty good shape. Yeah, it's either the stairwell or the location that connects to the stairwell. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. The experimental ward or yeah. something. Yeah. I, I can't. As remember. soon as there's yeah, you're right. There is that one location that once you seal it off, it basically cuts off half the map, and then you're, and then you just as long as the encounter card draws go well, then you're you're in pretty good shape for the my problem with that scenario has always been you need to uh, again spoilers you need to rescue uh, uh, Randolph Carter fairly quickly and my my issue has always been I get to the room and you have to make two skill tests and I always pass the first one and fail the second one and then if you do that for a couple rounds, you're you just fall behind, and it's very difficult to to keep up. Yeah, it's tough unless unless you're packing like fine clothes, right? Because it's a parlay test. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but for for you know for I was really surprised for I've really been enjoying playing on playing the, with the chaos ultimatum, um, just because it's. Uh, I mean, after you've played every scenario 10 or 15 times uh it's a it's a adds an, a new challenge to it and it's also fun just because i mean a lot of the when you play solo a lot of the cards that you play with are the same in a lot of a lot of decks you tend to play the same cards because they're just the best cards for the solo format and uh, if you're playing the chaos ultimatum which is basically you get a random deck for those who haven't played it, uh, Arkham DB can generate a random deck for you. Um, you end up playing a lot of cards that, uh, at least I do, I always end up playing a lot of cards that I would never consider playing. Um, but uh, it turns out a lot of them happen to be useful, uh, depending on... You, know, you often find yourself self in a circumstance where cards you didn't think you'd ever play turn out to be somewhat useful. So... It's uh, it uh, gives you a, a different uh, perspective on the cards and and what is what is valuable and what is not and especially when it comes to icons because even if the card isn't isn't playable immediately often its icons become uh, much more 
important. And what about what about you, Nathan? Have you played through much of Dream Eaters yet? Yeah, um, we were doing a campaign before COVID hit, uh, and I think we got Dark Side of the Moon, I think is the one we got up to. Um, but no, I really like it. Like, it shot from, you know, nowhere to be probably my second favorite campaign. Wow. I really like the search for Kadath, though. Uh, you know, it feels like an epic D&D adventure, but I mean, like, you sit down and play D&D for four to ten hours uh, per session. It all depends on who you're playing with and blah, blah, blah. So to do a two to three hour game is not, for me, that much of a deal. It feels more like a big quest. It's, um, but it's hella good. I, I really loved it. The artwork was great. And I just listened to Matt Newman do a a recap of um, the Dream Eaters on Drawn to the Flame <clears throat> and heard a bunch of stuff I didn't know about. So I'm looking forward to seeing if we can get him on our show to ask our own questions soon. But And um, doing a three-hour interview like he did with them. <laughs> uh, four. <laughs> no, but they paid him a lot of money. So, <laughs> right. um, You know, and as I said before, I really liked... The um, the first waking world scenario that deals with the hospital. I tell people that when I'm talking about that campaign, I say that that's the first time in a long time that Arkham Horror the horror was really highlighted because they really did a solid job of making a mundane situation really creepy, um, and I loved it. And Matt Newman had said before that. He took his arachnophobia and channeled it to kind of give it that extra boost. But no, I'm really liking the campaign, but I haven't plowed through and done the ones uh, during during the you know quarantine to just experience them. I want to play them blind first. So, but I'm enjoying it. That makes sense. Yeah, I think I think Waking Nightmare is definitely one of the strongest scenarios in the campaign overall. Um, I really like the infestation mechanic, aside from that one little kind of cheesy thing that you can do by stopping the spread by, um, you know, blocking that one location. But, um, and one criticism that I have is I kind of wish that they did more of that through B-side. Um, there, there isn't a lot of unique mechanics, so to speak. Like, I think a lot of the other campaigns have this, like, overall arching mechanical theme and i think i think dream eaters is more like the the scenarios are very mirrored to one another like 2a is very similar to 2b in some aspects and 3a and 3b are very similar um mechanically speaking and how the scenarios are structured which i really enjoy um and then scenarios 4a and 4b um i haven't played enough of weaver to formulate a an opinion, but I really liked where the gods dwell. I think that that is one of the strongest scenarios. I think of the of the campaign. I would say like one B and four A are my two favorites. I really liked the way um, Matt and the rest of the design team handled the like multiple uh, forms of Narlathotep through that scenario. I thought that was it was really interesting. It is. Uh, if you play predominantly solo, that scenario is particularly challenging because of the way you ultimately have to defeat Narlathotep. But um, but in my playthroughs, it's been pretty manageable. So may- maybe other people have different experiences with that scenario. But 
I really enjoyed uh, those two scenarios in particular. Um, as far as the two scenarios, I think I still like B-side more overall than than A-side. Uh, I don't know how to feel about Beyond the Gates of Sleep. I, I like the story that it tells, but I feel that that scenario is more of a formality. It's pretty easy overall, I would say. And... And then Search for Kadath, like Man from Lang was saying earlier, it feels more like a chore to play, at least in solo, a lot of the time, just because of how long it can take and uh, the constant setting up and taking down of the of the board itself can be a little jarring at times when you don't like have the full capacity, mentally speaking, to to deal with it. Um, and I really like the both the dark side of the moon and point of no return i think those are really good scenarios but why don't we kind of go back and take a look at some of the other campaign story arcs and mechanics and kind of discuss what we like about about the previous campaigns and what what they could take uh inspiration from those campaigns into future cycles like insmith and the uh, the I guess the other upcoming campaigns that they're working on just the just the actual gameplay, or are you talking also player cards and investigators? I guess we can talk about all those aspects as they're I would say all pretty equally important. So, um, but why don't why don't we start with Dunwich since that's the first um, first full length campaign? I think I think we've kind of discussed our feelings on the corset a lot, so I don't think we need to to beat that drum again. So, Vase, why don't, you, why don't you kind of kick off? Um, what, do, what do you like about Dunwich and the mechanics and the story? So, especially now, after so many other cycles have been released, I think the draw for Dunwich is kind of the simplicity. And not to say that it's too simple, but nothing feels clunky. Or, you know, how you were talking about taking down a scenario, an entire scenario, and then resetting it back up throughout the entire playthrough of it like Dunwich doesn't have anything like that it's just locations you move you investigate there are a couple of of unique ones like you know the Essex County Express that we mentioned but overall I like the simplicity it's a very straightforward story it's not um it's if you just want to play Arkham Dunwich is the way to go um but what I don't necessarily like about it is the low amount of experience points. I, I think the developers were still playing around with what a good amount of experience point uh, distribution was throughout a campaign, and I think they lowballed it way too much for Dunwich. Um, especially after playing it for the League of Extraordinary Investigators, it's really obvious that the Dunwich campaign really limits your, your upgradability for cards because of how how little experience it gives out. Yeah, that that's a fair criticism. I think most people would would agree with you there, Vase. Um but to kind of go on your point about what you did like about Dunwich, um what what I particularly enjoy about Dunwich is I like that each scenario feels distinctly different from one another. Like like scenarios 1A and 1B are very different from each other and then those scenarios are very different from the preceding Mythos packs and I like that like each scenario has its own mechanical theme around it like like Essex County has the location set up in a in a certain way and um you know Miskatonic Museum is you know about like evading one particular enemy and searching through you know a basically an explore deck which we'll talk about later when we talk about the Forgotten Age 
But I, I really enjoyed that each scenario felt really different. And the high points of that campaign are definitely really exciting for me personally. Like I really like Blood on the Altar mm. and I really like, um, I know it's probably a little bit controversial, but I really like Where Doom Awaits and Lost in Time and Space. I think those are really great scenarios. Oh, I thought you'd say the last one. Hello. Why <laughs> yeah. did you not mention The House Always Wins? I mean, I feel like that's just de facto oh, okay. the best scenario in the game. So, I mean, it's not really worth mentioning. <laughs> Good so. point. Okay. Um, the other, the other <laughs> thing that that campaign arc has for going for it is that that was the first campaign. So the first campaign you do or the first you know experience you have with the game is really kind of a seminal moment. You're like, oh, look what this does. And, oh, my God. And, and this has changed. And now we're somewhere different. So I really think that, you know, you could argue that other people starting the game will have different experiences because they might not start with Dunwich like a lot of people did that were following along. But I think that it's it's definitely going to be nostalgia uh, covered with our hindsight more than the rest. And that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, I, I just think that that speaks volumes to the um, to the design of the campaign itself. And the story is pretty good. I mean, it's it like... Um, like no pun included alluded to it is kind of just pulpy nonsense but i don't think that that does a disservice to the story at all I th- personally yeah i think it yeah makes it i fun. think <laughs> yeah it's a lot of fun to play uh man from lane what are your thoughts about dunwich overall i i agree with nathan that it's i mean as the first campaign for most most players it's um it uh earns a lot of praise for for that i i still enjoy going back and playing it um I can at this point. I mean, having played it so much, you can play. I can bang off, you know, half of it pretty quickly, and then play the other half another night. So it's. Uh, I like the the thing I like about it is that it's the scenarios seem seem for the most part pretty well balanced. Whether you play multiplayer or solo, which is something that I've really found in later campaigns, that is not always the case. So. Um, I like that, you know, I can play it by myself and and still have very solid games. And then if I play it in a group, then same thing. But I find, you know, I, I often talk about, you know, those barrier scenarios. And, and I mean, Undimensioned and Unseen is, is really the only one that uh, in that campaign that I... I don't really like playing, but I mean, I was joking with Vase, like whether his scenario has first turn resign or not. And, and that is actually a, f- a feature in, in undimensioned and unseen. So if you happen to be playing a, a low willpower investigator and you don't think you're going to really have a, you don't want to try to rejig your deck in order to, to deal with undimensioned, you can simply resign first turn and, and the punishment for doing so is not, you know, you 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 are punished for it, but it isn't. It it doesn't necessarily mean your campaign is over, sort of thing. And I, and I've sort of come to appreciate that that aspect of it, even if you are just sort of skipping one one of the scenarios. Yeah, I I don't think that does the campaign overall a disservice. Um, and and to kind of go into return to Dunwich since it's more of just an extension of the original campaign. What are, what are your guys' thoughts on the changes that were made to 
the campaign from Return to Dunwich? Uh, I, I don't think I think it's it it will depend on how many of the the new encounter cards you draw. And I know that this was an issue with the the Lord of the the Rings uh, LCG with their nightmare packs that you could you add the nightmare pack to the scenario and and depending on whether you actually draw any of the cards um the scenario could be quite a bit harder or it could be almost unchanged and i know when i played through uh return to the dunwich legacy i think extracurricular activity was basically the same um and then but essex county was was quite a bit harder so and and undimensioned was actually quite a bit harder too, just because the the broods get a significant boost, uh, which can be uh, especially late game once a couple of them get those get those treacheries on or get those encounter cards stacked on them, it can be uh, it can be very difficult to take them down. Yeah, the the broods though that I do like that they they added more variety for them. That was that was definitely nice, but I agree with you, man. From Ling, it's it's not a big enough change to have a huge impact, and they miss the opportunity to add more experience. I know I keep harping on that, <laughs> but uh, they they miss that opportunity too. Um, what do you guys think about the investigators of Dunwich? Uh, those investigators that come in that expansion are all pretty unique because they all of them have access to pretty much every card pool at level zero cards. They all can put five of any level zero card. What do you guys think about those investigators? Well, I think a lot of them have gone on to become the strongest investigators in the game. I mean, Ashcan is, is a solo player's dream because of Duke and, uh, Jenny sees a ton of play. Jim has, has evolved over time. Initially, I think he was probably among the weaker, uh, investigators initially but now i mean he's he's a monster in in uh path to carcosa and he's only received more and more tools as time has passed on to to uh improve his chaos back manipulation so and i still enjoy playing zoe solo so and rex was a mon was a I'm, I'm still remember the first time I played Rex and I'm just like, man, this guy's broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Re Rex was so good. They, they tabooed him. So, I mean, if, if that doesn't speak to the power level, then I don't know what does. Um, At least in multiplayer. Yeah. Especially in multiplayer. But I, I agree with you, man from Ling. I think that a lot of the Dunwich investigators have become, by and large some of the best investigators in the game and i think i think it's in large part due to their their card pool availability and flexibility in the way that you can build them jenny is um i would i would argue probably one of the most versatile investigators in the game coupled you know not only coupled with her her card pool but uh the the card adaptable from from the rogue card pool makes her very uh, very able to swap out cards for specific scenarios without you know without the need for experience so and and as you said earlier man from like ash Pete is a solo player's dream with duke because he's able to to investigate and fight enemies very well um yeah and i think i think 
like Zoe's a lot of fun and and Jim has become a lot more interesting. I know a uh, fan of the show and patron JP has built a Winchester Jim deck, which I've tried out, which is actually a lot of fun if you can get it to work. Um, so, so Jim is a fun experimental investigator too. Uh, what about you, Nathan? What do you think about the investigators from, from Dunwich? Well, <clears throat> Jim Culver's always been my favorite investigator. So I liked him even before the power creep and before Carcosa. But like everybody said, he definitely has become better. Um, touching back on what you'd said about the return to, I do like the notes that they added. Um, I really like how they fixed the experience. <laughs> Sorry, base. No, I'm joking. That didn't happen. Um, I like the um, the way they changed up Undimension Unseen a lot. It's kind of what I've done with um, some other fan mates that people have done to make them just a little more dynamic. Uh, but yeah, no, the I mean the investigators are great. The the fact you can have a Dexter in the world of Arkham in the form of Zoe is a lot of fun. So yeah, no, great job overall. So why don't we why don't we go ahead and talk about Carcosa next? Because I think that this is by and large the community's favorite campaign. Um, what what do you guys think about? Now why is that? Um, I think for me personally, I think it's a combination of the the story and the the mechanics in the scenarios i think a lot of people enjoy the the doubt or yeah the doubt and conviction uh storylines that you can you can go through when playing the campaign the investigators that they introduced in that campaign are exciting as are a lot of the player cards so your answer is a little bit of a b c and d yeah yeah i think so i think um you know, I, I think maybe this is a bit hyperbolic, but I really do think that Carcosa really is kind of the sweet spot, so to speak, in in difficulty and in replayability. Um, like Unspeakable Oath is probably one of the best scenarios in the game, and I don't think that that's a long a long shot to say. But what what do you guys think about Carcosa? Well, like yeah, Vase, what do you think makes Carcosa one of the fan favorites? Um. I'm going to take a left turn here with that. And I think it's because it's the most horror of all the campaigns. Um, it plays a lot with madness and the doubt conviction mechanic is pretty cool. But I think overall the campaign with its psychological horror is so different than an in-your-face monster. Like pretty much every other campaign is more pulpy in that way. Dunwich, Forgotten Age, Circle, no, not, not as much. And then Dream Eater's just weird. But um, overall, I think Carcosa is just straight up there's always something behind you and you, you kind of just feel this this creeping feeling under your skin the entire time that you play it. And I think that's got a lot to do with it too. What do you what about you? Well, I like the fact that you just wrote off Dream Eaters as the weird, you know. It's just weird. That should have been on the, the deluxe box art and cover. <laughs> Dream Eaters. It's I mean, just it's, weird. Face. It's based on one of the weirdest stories too, but <laughs> Uh, man from Lang, what do you think? Uh, I'm. I mean, I really enjoy Paths to Carcosa. I I like the a lot of the scenarios just for their standalone potential. I think uh, a lot of them play extremely well. Uh, just if you want to play a game of of Arkham without necessarily playing the campaign, uh, I think the the choices that you're offered when you play Doubt and Conviction. Uh, are interesting enough to uh, like if you want a 
you can sort of tweak the campaign to your um, player level. If you want a slightly easier campaign, you can go one way. If you want it to be slightly more difficult, you can go another. Um, the uh, I think all the scenarios are by and large very solid. The, the only one that uh, sort of bothers me is... Uh, is the the one in Paris? The name escapes me now. Um, Phantom of Phantom Truth. of Truth. Phantom of Truth. Yeah, just because um, it's very much like uh, Undimensioned and Unseen, which is very willpower heavy. Phantom of Truth is very evade heavy, and if you don't have an investigator that can can deal with that. Um, you can be in trouble. I also play. I also happened to play. I, I played it solo, four-handed once, and it took me like three hours, uh, and I just ended up quitting because it was too, too long. I just couldn't get. Uh, I forget whether it was the conviction or doubt route, but I just couldn't get uh, get uh, enough doom off the table in order to uh, to finish the to finish the game. So. But, uh, yeah, I still enjoy playing a lot of those scenarios, even if I don't play the campaign uh, itself. Yeah, I will say that I think that Phantom of Truth has a great story behind it. It's definitely very, uh, very close to the source material. And I think that's another strength for the campaign overall is that the scenarios the scenarios have great stories to them. Like you said, Manfrenling, even if you just play them in standalone mode, like, um, like Phantom of Truth is very much uh, in the court of the dragon from from the King and Yellow mythos, which is really cool, and um, yeah. So as far as things that I don't like, I don't particularly like Black Star's Rise. I know I've been pretty vocal about my disdain for that scenario. I I just don't like the way the agendas work. I guess, and I'm not a huge fan of really complicated setup instructions. So. Like that's another strike against that scenario as well is that you can you can accidentally like mess up the uh, the the setup and then that kind of puts a sour taste in your mouth when you go to replay it because you're like okay did I like you you're double and triple checking yourself when you when you set it up sometimes um, but overall I think that campaign is definitely definitely great so hearing what all what everybody had to say uh, listening to the community. I just want to say that it's probably, you know, the king in yellow. And thanks again for that book uh, that you all gave me after uh, Arkham Beneath the Waves. That is gorgeous. Um, but I think it is that mixture of well-balanced scenarios. It's got really rich, uh, you know, background with the king in yellow, obviously, and all those short stories. I think, unlike Dunwich, I think it takes you out of just the narrative and makes it more personal because I mean I, I truly felt after you know the dinner party without giving too much away I felt like I was there in the shoes of the investigator like really hardcore I like stopped at that point in real life I was like whoa like whoa <laughs> you know and things like that really stand out so I think it made it more personal for people well-balanced scenarios rich campaign uh, you know, references to come off of. Uh, so I just wanted to say that real quick. But uh, Nate, unplug, go right back to your comment. 
Wait, one last thing. And Nate, is it wrong for me to like Black Stars Rise just for the art? Because no, I don't think so. I I really love the artwork and the locations, and I mean, I it's beautiful, and I I like it just because of that. <laughs> I guess I I let the mechanics pass pass me by and forgive it. I mean, that's that's fair. Like you know, not to yuck anyone's yum, but you know, I, I think you can, you can absolutely like, you know, a scenario just because you like looking at the art or, you know, you like the way it plays or you like the story behind it. I think that's, that's kind of what makes Arkham great is that there are, there are multiple ways to enjoy, to enjoy the game. And it's not just a mechanical True. thing. So is, is yuck anyone's yum an official thing you say? Is that like, normal? I mean, is that thing a thing people say? Yeah, man. You've never heard that? <laughs> Not to yuck anyone's yum, but you were just nated. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nated is, uh, is an official term. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, after after my past couple of games on stream, that has become that has become a meme on stream, so <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. But uh, <laughs> But yeah, what do you what do you guys think about the investigators and the player cards introduced in Path to Kirkosa? I think there's a lot of unique cards, like Stick the Plan. Uh, Mark is a really interesting investigator. I think that um, oh, the name escapes me. The um, oh goodness, wow! Well, how am I forgetting all the investigators that are included in Carcosa? Mark, Min, Akachi, William, Safina, and Lola. Yeah, so so Lola is obviously a, a bit of a contentious uh, investigator. <laughs> best investigator in the for, game. You can play any. Oh, sorry. no! Clearly, the most advanced. You have to be a pretty advanced player to to really make her work. That's I think the best yeah. way to describe her. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think that she she is very interesting. You know, if you if you're that kind of player that likes to to solve that sort of puzzle, I think that that's that's great personally. So. Um, yeah, and I think by and large the investigators are really, really good. Um, Min was kind of an investigator I slept on for a long time, but after playing her, she's, she's awesome. really quite strong. Safina was a new was a new character invented for this, or this was her first appearance, I should say. In the yeah, yeah, she, yeah, and she's she's become easily one of my favorite rogue investigators after playing her through Dream Eaters recently. She's she's so much fun. Her her card pool is really interesting, and her her unique um, draw mechanic is really really fun to play around. And the, the more events that they they make in the game, the the more versatile that you can make a Safina deck. Um, but what what about what about you guys? What do you think? Um, I guess I'll jump in. Uh, I think that the investigators definitely for this cycle you started to see them experimenting more with some of the mechanics, like you just mentioned, Safina. Uh, William York with his recursion and, you know, Mark playing around with with damage as a resource. And, of course, Lola being so so different from all the others. I think the investigators were definitely a, a nice step away from the norm and really showed what, what the game was possible, you know, what was possible in the game. So a very, very cool group of investigators. I think a lot of these investigators in the cycle are favorites of a lot of people at least in the online communities i think what's also interesting about the investigators is that i think carcosa was the first campaign to really have the investigators thematically fit with the campaign too 
Yeah. I think Dun- Dunwich kind of less so in my opinion. You know, I think that those investigators can kind of be shoehorned into any campaign really. But but like the Carcosa investigators really feel like they belong in that in that box. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you on that. And I, I like that they've taken that approach in future campaigns and they really try to incorporate the investigators that are in the in the deluxe box with the the overall arching story of the campaigns. And uh, what about Man from Lang? What do you think about the investigators on Path to Carcosa? Uh, I think they're they're all very mechanically distinct. So when you're like the the I think the investigators from the core set in Dunwich. Um, when you get to when you do get to uh, Carcosa, I mean, playing Safina is quite a bit different from playing Mark, who's quite a bit different from playing Lola. Um, so each each one plays very plays very um, uniquely, I guess. It's not a great word, but but uh, yeah I, I i i enjoy them from that distinctly distinctly yeah they they each plays distinctly yeah and uh safina is also the first investigator to have a different size deck requirement from everybody else her and lola right i think they're oh does they're lola the first have ones? 30 I, I don't play her so i don't <laughs> lola has 40 i think it is oh dang you... okay so yeah so two investigators with, with varying card pools or it's 35 but once you add in all the all of her extra cards she ends up at 40 and what about what about you nathan what do you think about the investigators from carcosa uh yeah a lot of great points already said um and, and yeah, I really feel like they've flexed their muscles and were like, let's really figure out some cool mechanics. Uh, and Sabina, God, I just wish, I can't help but talking about investigators in this set and just wishing Lola was just a little different. <laughs> so bad I say that, but uh, Safina's definitely interesting. Um, Mark is still one of my absolute favorites. Uh, who was the... Oh, Min. Oh, pff, yeah. Min's great. I've always loved Min. So, yeah, no. I mean, I think they knocked it out of the park. Yet another reason why it's a fan favorite. And and kind of we can quickly touch on Return to Carcosa because there, there really wasn't a lot of changes uh, as far as the narrative of the, of the campaign goes. And there wasn't many, I guess, bug fixes, so to speak, to fix in Carcosa. So there wasn't... A lot of that. There was one change that they made in Return to the Last King with uh, Diane Devine and her her interaction with the way she uh, she works with the the party goers, so to speak. Um, but have you guys had a chance to play through Return to Carcosa yet? And if so, what are, what are your guys' overall thoughts on the changes? Uh, I mean, you and I have been playing through it. We haven't got very far, but I'd say that the I mean, the last king change is is fairly significant, and I think actually echoes the the addition of the new enemy is is pretty significant as well, because echoes you can almost sleepwalk through if you're, uh, but I don't think you can do that in uh, the return to version as easily. Mm, yeah, that's a good point, man from Lang. But I think I think because like. Especially when the scenarios are are solid to begin with, you don't need to to really tweak them all that much. Like the the new cards add some 
add some diversity to the scenarios and and you get a little bit more play out of them but i think that uh, for the most part the scenarios are already very solid so you don't need to to tweak them that much i'm kind of i haven't played return to black stars rise yet but i i would be i would be interested to see whether they because uh, you can choose that scenario pretty easily um i'd be interested to see if they if they tweak that a little bit but uh that's about all and holy crap the uh after the, the dinner party scenario is it the last king yeah uh the return to of that holy crap that's a, a new high bar for difficulty uh yeah yeah definitely I, I never do well with that one it's fun though i like that one Definitely yeah. agree with Man from Lang that The Last King is a significant change. Not that the original was bad in any way. It's definitely a place so much different, but both are good, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I think the changes more to Carcosa, at least specifically with Return to Last King, was more just uh, they wanted Diane Divine to work in a particular way, and they kind of flubbed on her on her mechanics a little bit. So, so Return to just kind of... Uh, I guess makes it more of the spirit of the intention. Yeah, I think I think this is how they wanted Diane to work, and the way she was written initially, she didn't, and so this is just fixing fixing that problem. So yeah, I don't have any have any issue with that because I know the first couple times I played it, and Diane came out, and I'm like, that's it, and I was just like, oh. <laughs> She doesn't really do very much. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people have that impression when they play through the the uh, the Last King for the first time. Yeah, because when you when you introduce a new character to the scenario, you sort of expect it to have some sort of impact, and she can definitely uh, not. Yeah, uh, but but overall, I think the changes are interesting. Um, I don't really know how to feel about some of the some of the Newman counter sets. I. The the new whispers in your head is, I think it's whispers in your head. The the, the peril cards that add to your hand, and then they they require you to, to perform some sort of action. And if you don't, then you take direct damage and horror. I don't know how I feel about those versus the other ones. I think they're they're less crippling overall. I know that some of the original whispers in your head can be very very debilitating depending on how your deck is built or what what investigator you're playing but yeah overall i think they're they're pretty solid changes and it definitely adds some nice replayability to an already great campaign yeah i think the original ones were were very swingy depending on which one you drew and which investigator you're playing because i know there are ones where i've drawn them and just been like okay well this affects me in no way whatsoever so i'll (laughs) just hang on to it and not worry about it while I know when I draw the new ones, I'm like, okay, I have to deal with this. I can't, uh, I can't simply ignore it because I don't have any free triggered abilities I need to activate or, or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, but yeah, why don't, why don't we go ahead and talk about the forgotten age, which is a pretty contentious Ooh. campaign. I think, uh, personally, it's my favorite campaign. Same I here. really like I really like the story, and I actually really enjoy 
most of the scenarios, but we can, we can kind of talk about what we don't like in a bit. Share your thoughts first. Yeah, as, as far as overall, the campaign is just great. I really love that kind of pulpy uh, Indiana Jones-style story, and I really like the tie-ins that uh, Fantasy Flight added in with the mythos and that kind of pulpy sort of action uh, action movie-type feel. Um, I really like Explore, despite it having some... Uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Some some issues, I guess, with in certain scenarios. Um, but I mean, Untamed Wilds and Doom of Etsley and Threads of Fate are just great scenarios, in my opinion. I really enjoy replaying those a lot. And Depths of Yoth is, I think, a community favorite, and there's a lot of uh, interest in that scenario with with the "How Low You Can Go" challenge and. And I also really like the divergent narratives and who you side with can can have a pretty big impact in the story. But yeah, Vase, since you also really enjoy this campaign, what what about the Forgotten Age do you like so much? Um, I'm with you on pretty much everything you said. I think Explore is overall pretty good, except for maybe one scenario. Um, but despite, I mean, it's not perfect, definitely. It's still my favorite, though. There's two scenarios that I that I don't care for, and that's Heart of the Elders and Boundary Beyond. Boundary Beyond, I don't mind sometimes. It's just a little too much so, uh, as in terms of how punishing it can be to investigate but um, or to explore, I mean. But uh, the high points are really high. Like you said, Untamed Wilds, Doom of Esli, and Threads of Fate are, are definitely up there for me uh, in top advent- or scenarios for the entire game. Uh, a lot of new, interesting mechanics they played around with. They don't always work perfectly, um, but overall, I think that that this campaign as a whole had some really, really great high points. It also had, like you said, the diverging storylines, where your decisions really... I mean, Carcosa played with it, but it doesn't have as big of an impact on the story as a whole, like Forgotten Age does. And I think that that really attracts me to it as well especially for replayability. And kind of to to go on that point about the the mechanics too. I really like that they they stressed the importance of evasion and they really kind of like flipped that that enemy management on its head so to speak. You know, I think when you play through Dunwich and Carcosa, the the general consensus is that defeating enemies by and large is usually more useful. But with the way that vengeance works throughout that campaign, you you end up kind of rethinking how you deal with enemies, and I really thought that that was interesting. Yeah, it's I think it's more complex than people give it credit for because it's not like some people call it a very evasion-heavy campaign, and I don't think that's the case at all. I think between having explore and smaller maps initially, uh, hunters are going to keep hunting you, and evading them doesn't really do that much except buy you one round. So mm-hmm. it... It definitely has its place in the campaign, like you said, vengeance enemies. So there's certain snakes that don't hunt, and you can evade them, and you should evade them, or you're going to get vengeance points. But you have to be strategic as to what creatures you evade and which ones you actually face head on. So I think it's a, a little more complex than people give it credit for. Yeah, that, that's a fair point, Vase. I, I would definitely agree with you there. And and I know a lot of people have their gripes with Explore, but personally, I, I don't. I guess I guess for I don't except for Heart of the Elders and in Boundary Beyond because only because they punish you I mean Boundary Beyond doesn't really have the same the same explore mechanic but it's 
it's tied to it in a way, what, how it punishes you, and it's... Yeah, I know Man from Lang has touched on his feelings between the connection of those two scenarios in particular, but uh, but, but before we kind of go into our gripes with... I, I think it's, by and large, like, those are the two problem scenarios. Um, Man from Lang, why don't you kind of just quickly discuss what you do like about The Forgotten Age? Uh, I like a lot. I mean, I, lo- I'm, I really enjoy a lot of the scenarios, and I still play, play a lot of them in um, standalone mode. Um, just because I, th- I think the scenarios themselves are quite solid. The uh, uh, Untamed Wild is is still one of my favorites to test decks against, and then uh, and then Doom of Esli is is can be very uh, can be a very intense uh, run depending on how things uh, work out. Sometimes it doesn't work out so well, but. But uh, for the most part, I've had some of my best games playing that particular scenario. But the, uh, I mean, for me, the the biggest issue with the with the campaign is Heart of the Elders, by far. And I'm really, really hoping that the Return to the Forgotten Age box will fix it. Well, well, like Matt Newman, <clears throat> pardon me, he came out and said that people that liked the Forgotten Age are going to like the Return to, and people that hated the Forgotten Age are going to love. The return to so I think yeah I think he tackled that one full on. I hope so because it's I mean I, I do enjoy the I do enjoy that that campaign. I don't know if it would be if it's my favorite, but um, I don't know if I'd go as far as to to call it my favorite. But I do enjoy it. I do enjoy a lot of those scenarios, and it's uh, my only my only small negative about playing them solo is that they do depend on the supplies. And I really just don't like having to bother picking supplies before I play. So I just, I tend to assume that I have a couple of supplies or I just ignore them altogether. And, and I find that it doesn't really affect the, the games all that much if I'm playing standalone. So, so that's nice. That's fair. But tracking, you know, when you're playing, I, I, I don't like the whole tracking of supplies thing. It adds a, a whole other layer to the bookkeeping <laughs> uh, I guess a whole level of overhead that I'm not uh, crazy about but I don't you know it's not a reason not to play it either it's interesting you say that because that was actually one of the things I really enjoyed about the forgotten age was was the way that the supplies interact with the with the various scenarios but I enjoy like the kind of upfrontness of the way the supplies work and that you you pick them before you actually sit down to play the games and like one of my, one of my biggest gripes with the game as a whole is I don't particularly enjoy scenarios where you have to like you know deconstruct and then reconstruct so to speak like when there's a lot of bookkeeping in the middle of a game that I don't particularly enjoy but I like I liked the way that the supplies interact with the campaign overall uh, so yeah I, I do wish that they had a bit more in terms of like encounter cards that that require certain supplies or you know not require but have some special interaction with your supplies so a little bit more of actual of impact into the game i think i'm assuming man from link doesn't agree with that since he didn't like the keeping track of them but um i do i do wish that it had more of an impact in the actual games i think it's funny that that uh we seem to be counterpoint to man from lang for Several points. Sorry about that, man. From Lang. Um, no, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the supplies, and I and as I was saying earlier, I think they were well done because uh, 
you you never feel like you can grab enough supplies you know even with playing with four people and everybody takes something different you're always like oh i wish i would have had this or that so i thought that balance is pretty fun um i also appreciated someone and i don't know who off the top of my head but it's i think it's on the files uh, on board game geek for arkham horror the card game but someone had done all the pictures of all the supplies so for like two sheets of paper two cardstock sheets you can get all the supplies needed and like pass them around to people and it makes it a little more you know personable but that just heralds back to the day of uh, choose your own adventure books you know where it'd be like hey you can start the game with any of these two potions of of seven potions and once again when you play the game you want them all but in reality you've got two you know um i also did like the exploration mechanic i thought that was clever <sighs> yeah heart of the elders breaks you but as much as it sucks spoiler warning i was very grateful that before the forgotten age even came out i had gone and bought like three of each two different styles of um carnivorous plants so i had that that shit on lockdown when i had to use them we were playing and i was just like boom Here's a bunch of strangle vine and whatever. And people are like, how did you know? I'm like, my heart. My heart knew. Um, I guess my one big gripe for the whole thing uh, is very simply no blowgun. Other than that, I had a great time. And I did message Matt Newman right away and say, why all the snakes? So Yeah, I mean, no blowgun definitely sucks. But uh, kind of, like you, like you said, I really liked... Um, the, the tension that the supplies give you like, uh, oh, I really wish I had taken the canteen for this, or, you know, I really wish I actually had the, the pendant for this particular scenario. Um, but to kind of go on Vase's point, I do kind of wish that there was more positive impact for taking scenarios or supplies, excuse me. Um, there's, there's a lot of like, if you, if you have this, then something bad doesn't happen to you, but there isn't a lot of, if you have this supply, you get to do something good, barring the exception of, like, the canteen, for example. Um, so, I, so I do kind of wish that there was more positive interactivity with with the supplies rather than just, oh, crap, I forgot this, and now I have to, you know, take less resources in this scenario or draw less cards or something like that, so... Um, but what are you, what are you guys' thoughts on the investigators of the Forgotten Age? I personally have really come around to Calvin after playing through a couple different campaigns with him. He's actually been a lot of fun for me. So I was going to say you've been playing him a lot lately. Yeah, he's a, he's I think I think specifically with Calvin, it's more that he finally has a card pool to build a reasonable deck with, kind of in the same vein as Jim that we discussed earlier. Like he was probably a pretty, pretty weak investigator, but now that he has the tools he needs, he can be really, really quite potent. So, so I really like him, and Ursula is also a ton of fun to play. She's very powerful and solo, as we, uh, as we've discussed in previous episodes. And Father Matteo is—I really like his story, and I like, um, like his his mechanics, but. I think, unfortunately, he's kind of one of those investigators that needs more unique cards to his 
his card pool to kind of be fleshed out properly. Yeah, I think I think Father Mateo is probably the weakest, one of the weakest investigators, uh, unfortunately, just because of his his special ability is once per game. And once you trigger it, he's blank. Yeah, that that's a fair point. And and his card pool is essentially just mystic plus some survivor cards. Yeah, and and he's a mystic with four. His his card pool is limited basically to mystic and blessed, and he's a four willpower mystic, which is not. Uh, if he had, if he was a five willpower mystic, he would probably be a lot better. But at four, I find. I played a lot of him through uh, through the Forgotten Age, and and just never really. Some some games he'd click and he was amazing, and then a lot of games he just he'd flounder and uh, and then you know he just couldn't recover and he wasn't fast enough. Now that could be just a mystic problem in general, but but he just didn't seem to have the tools he needed. Um, to get the job done i haven't revisited him since then uh so uh calvin i have a a real i have very mixed feelings about i have not played him since the forgotten age which was a a disastrous experience Uh, i played him through uh through night of the zealot shortly after he was spoiled and had a really good uh really good campaign with him and was really looking forward to playing him and then i played him through untamed wilds and it's the closest i've come to rage quitting the game <laughs> and uh and haven't played him since and everyone keeps telling me he's a lot better now so i will have to revisit him at some point yeah man for Lane, he's a lot better now <laughs> but yeah I, I think it was just getting overgrowth on the main on the expedition camp three games in a row on turn Ugh. one that was yep. uh that w- did me in i mean he just uh i managed to get through it a couple times but he just doesn't ha- didn't have the tools to to recover i mean to be fair man from like that would probably make me rage quit a scenario too so i i feel you on that front uh nathan what what are your thoughts on the investigators from from tfa you know um Every time I hear t- TFA, I think of, uh, what do you call it, uh, like some kind of flight thing. Uh, TSA? What, what is that called? TSA? <laughs> <laughs> like, so every time I hear TFA, I'm like, what, what are we flying? What's going on? Um, no, they were great. I think they continued what they started with, um, well, especially Pat the Carcosa, and they really made some distinctive people. Um, with their abilities, like Calvin really shook people up. I really like Father Mateo, um, but I want to give credit where credit's due, and Man from Lang really puts characters, investigators through their paces by doing a lot of gameplay. So if ultimately, if he's like not happy with his willpower, like I'm going to give him that credit of, oh, okay, it's probably too low, but I've enjoyed Mateo uh, doing, doing him in campaigns and having that power, almost like a, a prayer for when that one insta-failist comes and be like, you know what, nah, let's go ahead and make that an elder sign. It just feels kind of cocky good. Um, Ursula's always strong. Uh, Finn, I haven't really played much. Leo's okay. I keep on going back to Mark. But, um, yeah, overall they're pretty good. 
Yeah, I think I think my issue with with Mateo is more just the when I played him was his inconsistency and his very small card pool, <laughs> which doesn't give you a lot of. I think it's gotten better. I mean, it's obviously gotten better since then. But did did you find that? Did you find the experience out? Oh, the I like the I like you know the fact that he gets that experience. I mean, it adds a real interesting dimension to his to his deck building. But I find that that you know adding, I mean, you've got a couple options there. You can add a couple of low experience cards, or you can try to go for the big, you know, buy a five experience card and and it seems really cool to start off with a, an, a, a huge experience point card in uh, your deck but uh, uh, ultimately it really depends on whether you draw it and in the games you don't like one card in 30 is not gonna not gonna swing a game uh, if you don't draw it yeah that that's fair and so I found that, you know, it was often better. I tried to, like, pick up a couple of smaller cards. and, and But even then, you know, it, it just it wasn't enough to make up for his, um, for his lower willpower, which is, I mean, at the time, uh, before uh, Dream Eaters, when Mystics have received all these options not to go the willpower route, um, really at the time I was playing him, I mean, Mystics had to go willpower, and his willpower was was low, was lower than. Uh, I mean, it was still above average, but not. It wasn't Agnes or Akachi status, and if you just didn't get the right cards to get his willpower high enough, he he could struggle. Yeah, I feel that way about Akachi personally too. Like all all the things that you've said about um, that you said about Father Mateo, I feel kind of similarly about Akachi, but obviously Akachi doesn't have the four willpower problem. I don't know. I, th- I think Akachi's really good. I think, though, that with the Circle Undone release, her power level went down a little bit because a lot of the other mystics now don't have to worry about charges as much as they used to. And, um, you know, her big thing was the extra charge on on spell cards. So... I feel like Akachi, or not so much her power level went down, but I feel like other mystics kind of went up slightly above her in, in, in terms of that. Mm-hmm. Her ability is not as important as it used to be. That's a good point, and that kind of leads into our, our next campaign, which is the Circle Undone. Um, so I, I have my my gripes with TCU as a predominantly solo player. A lot of the scenarios are difficult and very long, and not to say that like difficulty is a bad thing per se, but but they feel like they feel difficult just because they're so long and grueling, and particularly secret name and wages of sin are very very difficult and they don't feel rewarding. So so those are kind of my my initial gripes with that campaign. I really enjoy the first two scenarios of that campaign, but. I feel that the rest of the campaign for me doesn't really click. Um, so it's it's overall my least favorite of the campaign so far. What are, what are your guys' thoughts on TCU? Oh, uh, I think the uh, I think the the prologue was a a neat idea, but it's but it's sort of gimmicky, and uh, I tend to ignore it now. Uh, I like like you. I like the uh, the witching hour is a is a great scenario. As is the uh, 
at death's doorstep is is cool too. Uh, I think that again, as a predominantly solo player, I think I, I I struggle with this campaign more than more than the others. I like playing. I've you know scenarios like the secret name have grown on me to play in standalone, where there's really nothing on the line other than just trying to trying to beat the scenario it doesn't affect the camp like there's no greater campaign to worry about so i enjoy playing them that way but as far as the campaign goes i think the biggest problem for me is that so much of the story feels like it's locked behind doing well in the scenarios and because it's so punishing for solo players you don't really get a good sense of what the story is about because i know um toward the end of the campaign when i played it solo i was just like where do you find all this stuff like when did this when did you have this happen and and stuff like that and and it was only you know after i played the some of the scenarios solo um and just standalone and was reading the the outcomes i'm like oh here here's you know if i had done better you know i would have I would have discovered this or that thing, or the story would have been a little more fleshed out. But I just feel like a lot of it is just locked behind these very difficult uh, scenarios to beat in, in as a solo player. Yeah, I feel that way too, man. From Lang, I remember um, like one one particular example to kind of go on your point is is at Death's doorstep. Like if you if you want to befriend the lodge you have to do really well in that scenario and it's it can be difficult depending on on your investigator and what you draw from the encounter deck and i think like that and um for the greater good is another scenario you have to do particularly well if you want to get a certain outcome which which is fine i think blind but um but yeah, trying to trying to like get a certain outcome is very difficult and it doesn't feel rewarding. I guess is my is my biggest gripe with that campaign. Yeah, I, for me I think um when I first started playing the campaign, the deluxe expansion was fantastic. I really love the the prologue idea. Uh, I do kind of agree with Man from Lang that after you do it the first time, it's a bit of a of a slog, but I still like it. I still like the idea just for the flavor, you know, the, the horror movie flavor and that kind of thing. Um, so I do like that. But um, the the other thing that I, that I immediately started affecting me with with this uh, campaign that made me dislike it tremendously was the complexity of a lot of the things within the within each scenario between having too many things in your thread area to the haunted mechanic remembering that remembering other things like there's so much happening at once and since like most of us i'm primarily a solo player when you're playing multiplayer people can remind you hey you forgot to do the haunted or hey you remember you have that in your threat area but when you're playing solo keeping track of all these things is it's a bit of a nightmare and it takes away from my enjoyment of the game. And I think there's just way too many scenarios that have that kind of thing going on. Like, um, what's the graveyard one? That one's ridiculous. I mean, I, I played that three times I played it. I think each time I had at least four things in my thread area, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> and then keeping track yeah, of when and, they trigger. And secret name has that problem too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the scenarios do, and it's, a uh, 
the first two scenarios are really strong, really good. I, I was when I played those first two, I was like, wow, this is probably going to be my favorite campaign. But then, you know, the expansion packs started coming out, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I like this. And it's very willpower heavy on top of everything, so it definitely favors Mystics, kind of. Yeah, well, it, it <laughs> and, is it is a very know, willpower heavy campaign, and. And I mean, one of my gripes about Undimensioned and Unseen was that it favored high willpower investigators. And so then you hit TCU and the whole campaign favors high willpower investigators and it and it punishes you um, for investigate for failing investigate tests. And if you're not so if you don't have a good uh, if you don't have a high investigate, you simply can't. Uh, uh, sorry, unless you have a high intellect, you simply can't do those just an investigate check to try to grab a clue because the punishment is yeah. just too extreme. And and this is particularly true. Like secret name is really the really drives that home. I mean, I don't know how many times I've I've done investigate checks at the rat room and I've been like, oh, okay, I'm you know I should have this, and then I just draw an auto fail, and from that point on, things yeah. just. I think this scenario went a little too far. Yeah, exactly. Things just spiral out of control, and there's very little you can do about it. And then, of course, in that, you just get your, your threat area loaded up with with willpower treacheries that you've got to deal with. And, you know, you're just... And they trigger at different times. Some end at the end of the mythos phase, some are at the end of your turn. And it's it's a constant testing, testing, testing with things in your threat area. And then there's treacheries that add the haunted mechanic to locations that are not haunted and you have to remember that that's the case there's just i think too much the the campaign overall asks too much for a solo for a solo player to to keep track of uh, you know on top of all the other problems that it has um which is too bad because i think the theme was there i i love the whole witch theme and the you know the ancient history of arkham uh that's coming back to haunt you know the current citizens and then the secret society that's trying to prevent certain... Di- like, I, I do like that power struggle. I like the idea of it. But the implementation was, I think, um, not as successful as, as we all had hoped. Mm-hmm. And then later on in the campaign, Union and Disillusion is like, I don't even know how you beat that scenario as a solo player. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I know we're going to talk about investigators uh, in a second, but briefly... Because it ties into this, I think almost all the investigators in this campaign suffer from a similar thing. They're all very complex. So my my big thing with this game is a new player coming in gets the core set, and if the, if a certain campaign is the only one available, what is going to be their impression of the game, and will they end up not liking the game because of it? And I think this campaign is one of those that can cause that, because between the, the scenarios being overly complex for a solo player the investigators overall are a little bit more complex than your, the rest of the investigators that came before them. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, and I think a lot of the investigators from TCU are very dependent on, like if, if you want to do well with them, I think they're very dependent on having a lot of the other previous packs, um, like particularly like Diana Stanley, you know, you want as many good cancel cards as you can get. And, you know, some of those aren't found in the corset or or the circle and done. So that that's an issue. Uh, another another investigator is Preston, I think, can can suffer from that same issue a lot. And 
And then I guess I guess Rita is Rita's the most straightforward of of the group, without a doubt. I think a lot of the investigators, except for Rita and Marie, um, kind of try to turn the their faction in on its head. They're, I, I get what they were going for. They're trying to basically tell people, hey, just because you're a guardian doesn't mean you have to be fighty. So they bring out Carolyn Fern and, you know, Diane, is Diana Stanley guardian? Yeah, right. Um, then Joe Diamond, you know, Joe Diamond, oh, well, you don't have to be very investigating. You could be combat-based as well. So I get what they were going for, but it, it can cause confusion for a new player, and it can also, and a lot of them are too complex, like Joe Diamond with the hunch deck, and, um, you know, D- Carolyn Fern with her card pool can be confusing for people, the, the limitations on it. Um, Preston Fairmont can be really complex because of his stat line and the way his ability works and all that stuff. Diana Stanley with the way her ability works with putting cards under her and all that kind of stuff. They're just, there's a lot more going on with most of the investigators in this one than in previous campaigns. And on their own, they're probably all pretty good. But as a whole, since they're all presented within this one package, it makes it more frustrating because now you're buying this pack and all the investigators in the pack pretty much have all these complexities. So it's a, you know, it's if they had spread them out more thinly with, you know, one, one deluxe expansion, having one more complex investigator like Calvin, let's say for the forgotten age, then that's fine. You have one that people are going to try and figure out, you know, but in this case you get pretty much all of them being that way. What are are your thoughts, man from Malang? I've really enjoyed playing, Diana and Marie. I think Marie is one of my favorite investigators. I know she was she was spoiled well, you know, almost as soon as the game came out. But it's nice to finally see her and her real, real uh, investigator. So I've really enjoyed playing both of those investigators. Uh, I would agree that a lot of them there is there's a complexity there that's that's. Uh, can be tricky to manage. I mean, I don't know how many times I've forgotten Joe Diamond's hunch deck, which is pretty fundamental to how he plays. And so constantly having to remind myself, okay, I need to draw a hunch card, I need to draw a hunch card is... is um, I don't really like things like that because they can... If you remember, say, at the end of your turn, it's just like, and then you draw your weakness say and then all of a sudden like the whole turn can can change on a dime like oh i wouldn't have done like the turn would not have unfolded this way if i had known that i had drawn that card yeah that that's a good point man from like do you do you think that it does those investigators uh, a disservice in a way uh no i ju- i think it's um i don't think it does them a disservice it just it I think especially in this particular campaign where you have a lot to remember already, there are so many triggers that you have to remember and then having triggers on the investigators as well to remember is, is a lot to ask. Like, I think it, I don't think it would have been as bad had they, they possibly, you know, okay, we're going to load up your threat area with cards that have triggers to remember but the investigators are going to be straightforward. I don't think I think that would have been less of an issue than having okay, you're going to have a lot of triggers to remember on the table and you have to remember triggers on your investigator. Yeah. 
it's the context of them within this pack. Joe Diamond in his hunch deck, and then Diana with placing cards underneath her, and and then drawing a card and stuff like that. Like once you play them a little bit, you you can get into a routine where you remember that sort of thing. But but I think initially, like if they made the the investigators more straightforward that didn't involve triggers, um, it would have taken a little bit of pressure off the off the uh, off the players. But I know we've, I mean, I've, I don't know if Nathan has played some of the, the early scenarios that uh, Matt Newman designed for the Lord of the Rings card game, but uh, his, his first, the, uh, the first campaign that he worked on was very similar in this way, that there were a lot of triggers to remember. And I think he actually dialed it back a little bit in, in, in uh, the circle undone compared to to his previous work because the the uh the first campaign he designed was just there was a lot to remember and there were triggers that were triggered by triggers and so it would uh, you could really uh, i've i've played those scenarios and and often by the end i can never say if i actually played them properly because i'm almost certain i missed something (laughs) and even if you go slow and be careful it still feels at the end like did i really win this legitimately or is there an asterisk beside this because i missed some trigger at some point during the game yeah and and those problems are amplified when you're playing solo i think too on top of everything but nathan you're predominantly a multiplayer player of if I'm uh, remembering correctly, what are you, what are your thoughts on TCU and the investigators presented um, in the box? All this is true. You know, the TCU was because uh, that first scenario is pretty harsh, so I think it really leaves a, a sour note almost in your crawl because you're like in this desperate gonna die situation. Like, I don't think that's necessarily a negative that you have that experience and stuff, but man start off that way really kind of just takes the wind out of your sails, at least did for me. So then going forward, um, the whole cycle is just dark. And I don't know, I think for those reasons, it's my least favorite cycle. I still play it. I still appreciate it. And like you all already talked on, um, the uh, all the triggers make it kind of Trixie, but once again, playing multiplayer, it is easy to remember because you're all watching each other's back. Um, and the the people from that cycle I haven't played with enough. You know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around all the previous investigators. But, uh, but overall, I'm grateful for it being around and having the content. Yeah, I like a lot of the player cards that are presented in TCU. I think as a veteran player, they're very interesting. But, you know, like, like Vase said, I think... As a newer player, it can be really jarring to um, to your experience, and it might it might give like a, a negative impression on the game overall. Well, yeah, and going back to that, that was a good point that that Vase had brought up. There are cases, especially with Dunwich and Carcosa, uh, and even Dreamlands now being sold out at a retail level. If we have all of uh, circle undone people like hey I just, I just want an entire cycle so I can play the whole thing through and I'm like here you go like here's 
the circle undone, enjoy. And I mean, they like it enough, they come back for more. But it is a, an interesting first, you know, first experience. So, so I know we've already kind of touched on on the Dream Eaters initially, but uh, I don't think we really specifically talked about the investigators. And while the investigators from from TCU are kind of overly complex, I think barring the inclusion of um, of Luke, I think a lot of the investigators from from the Dream Eaters are really uh, really interesting and and not too difficult to wrap your head around, but still being plenty interesting enough to be unique in their own regard. I like how you give that disclaimer, except for Luke. <laughs> yeah, Luke is... <laughs> I, I think just the way that the gatebox can really, I would argue, break scenarios and the way that they're intended to be played. Um, like, Luke is a very, very tricksy investigator, and he can, he can be a lot to kind of wrap your head around initially but he's he's quickly become i think my favorite mystic investigator just because he's so unique and his card pool is really interesting and the way it um it all interacts with his key asset the gatebox i find that to be really quite fascinating on a on a personal level but what are your guys's thoughts on the investigators i know vase you really enjoy tommy a lot yeah let's let uh nate or nate <laughs> i almost called him nate nathan why don't you give your thoughts first and then i'll give mine um, you know, the funny thing is, before before they came out, I was confusing Tony and Tommy together. I think somebody was like, hey, you should do this. I'm like, you can't do that. That's the, the wrong class. And then it came out that I was confusing the new bounty hunter Tony for the new guardian paladin Tommy. So that was just a fun free-for-all. I think that happens to a lot of people. Uh, apparently. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't help that they're both TM. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Um, yeah, I I think Nate actually nailed it. They're not too complex. Um, they're fun to play. I still haven't played Luke, uh, which annoys me because he looks fun. Um, but uh, no, I like him overall. I haven't. I played just a tiny bit with Mandy. I played the most with Tommy. Uh, I want to play Tony more because I do like the bounty uh, idea, but um, good. And Patrice, I just recently played uh, and enjoyed, just like um, Matt Newman said in several articles or several interviews, um, that having that kind of hand recursion and constantly having cards is really helpful. Yeah, I I do agree with you with you guys that. Uh this cycle, at least they dialed back the complexity of the investigators, but still kept them interesting enough where they feel different, you know, and uh, and unique. So Tommy, like you said, <laughs> Nate, uh, definitely one of my favorite investigators to play. I do like playing Guardian a lot, so that, you know, that helps too. But I like Tommy's ability. <laughs> right. what, what's your favorite weapon in Guardian? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one hint. It starts with an M and rhymes with Achete. Oh, I thought so you were going to say, like... Figure it out. Um, uh, uh, Kakashi or whatever. Well, what's Kukri? the <laughs> Kukri. Makukri. <laughs> Makukri. Um, yeah, so Tommy, Tommy's great. Uh, Mandy Mandy is probably one of the more complex ones because of her uh, card pool and how you can customize it. But once you once you get it built, once you get the deck built, 
she plays pretty normal. So that's that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Luke is the only one I haven't played Luke, and I'll be honest, I have no interest in playing him. Uh, what it feels a little? Yeah, I know it's it's not a popular opinion, but I'm not a huge fan of janky jankiness like that. So I I don't know. Oh, dude, he is not janky, man. He is super strong. Yeah, I know. I just. It, it, it just doesn't interest me. It doesn't help that I'm not a huge Mystic fan. Pretty much for Mystics, I play Mateo and Akachi, and that's it. Like, the most straightforward ones. Mm. Um, so maybe that's got a lot to do with it. Patrice, on the other hand, I love. She's so much fun to play. I really... She's one of my favorite investigators now. And then Tony. Tony, I've played once, uh, but I've played at several tables with Tony, and he always just destroys. He's awesome. Tony's really, really cool. Uh, I, I do like him a lot. So overall, I think the Dream Eaters did bring quite a few really awesome investigators. Not to say the ones from Circle and Dunner were bad. It's just like how Man, Man from Ling was saying, within the context of them all coming together within that same pack as a group, it makes the Circle and Dunn ones feel a little too like a little too much. But individually, they're all good too. Yeah, I, I really enjoy... I think almost all of the investigators from from the Dream Eaters. I think honestly, Tommy's the one I've played the least, just because somebody else always ends up taking him. But I really enjoy all the investigators from the Dream Eaters, and I think like they all feel so unique within their own class. Um, and maybe apart from Mandy, who's just kind of a a five intellect powerhouse, and um. And to a to a lesser extent, I guess, um, like Tommy is not the most unique, but he definitely feels unique because of the way he he recurs his assets. Uh, I, I think overall that the investigators from the Dream Eaters are are home runs, and I I hope that they continue to to design the investigators in in a similar vein, because I think you know as as we said earlier, I think that. The TCU investigators, while are interesting and powerful in their own right, they they are definitely puzzles to solve overall, for the most part. Yeah, I think the Dream Eaters investigators are the Dream Eaters and the Carcosa investigators. If you're if you're limited in funds and want some cool investigators as a group, you know, as a whole, I think you couldn't go wrong with either one of those two packs: the Dream Eaters or Path to Carcosa. <laughs> So I know we've kind of touched on it throughout throughout kind of discussing the campaigns as a whole, but a topic we wanted to focus on was what do you what do you guys think constitutes actually winning a scenario, and like how, how do you think people should feel about their um, f- feel about their defeats or feel about how well they do in a scenario? Yeah, that's been the topic of conversation in in a Reddit and Facebook and stuff, especially with newer players that are like, hey. I just played this game. I got my ass handed to me. Uh, played it again. I did a little less bad. How do I feel about that? Like, what should I aim for? And sure, it's fine for veterans of the game to be like, you know, hey, it's cool. It's Arkham Horror. You're, you're supposed to win and lose. But I really feel like, especially newer players and especially people that are not used to Arkham things, need some W's under their belt, you know, with some easier scenarios. 
uh, to get the mechanics down and kind of feel like they've achieved something. And then you can get into the more esoteric meta, well, leave when you can, that kind of thing. But, you know, that's just my hobby. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Nathan. Um, it, it can certainly be frustrating when you, you feel like you're just getting crushed scenario after scenario, but you're actually, realistically speaking, you're probably actually doing pretty well, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily correlate that you're doing well because you're, you know, you're getting the defeat, so to speak, quote unquote, of, of the scenario. So, um, so yeah, I definitely agree with you, with you there that it, it definitely, um, you definitely want those positive, like that positive reinforcement initially. And then you can kind of take the humor of getting absolutely crushed in a scenario once you're, once you're more experienced and. Well, no, I agree a hundred percent. Um, the other thing that I tell newer players is don't be afraid to net deck at first. Yeah, that's a really good point, Nathan. Um, and and that can be kind of tough if you're if you're a player that just plays solo and you're just getting into the game by yourself. Um, I know I know the guys from the Mythos Busters. I think it was almost a couple of years ago. They they wrote like a basic deck building guideline on FFG's website, and and Vase and I have kind of touched on on that subject for specifically solo players. But I think that's a really good point, Nathan, is that you, if you don't build a good deck or if you don't have like general guidelines on what you should be doing in the game, because I think the, the learn to play guide is kind of ambiguous, so to speak. Like it doesn't really go into, you know, if you're playing on standard, you probably want to be a certain threshold above the test that you're, that you're, uh, that you're doing in order to likely succeed. And there's all these little kind of nuanced things about the game that are unspoken within the rules that I think really improve one's experience when playing. Um, yeah, for new players, it's, it's kind of hard to, if they're not playing with someone who's experienced that can tell them that that's how it works. It's hard for them to sometimes grasp the concept of a, of how a horror game is supposed to play out that uh, a defeat is not necessarily a loss. But I, I like the victory point system. I, I'm glad they threw that in there because then at least you can somewhat quantify, you know, how well you did. Because you finished a scenario, you were, you know, defeated by horror, but now you have five experience points, so you can still up, update your deck, upgrade your deck a little bit. So in a way, it's a, it's a pretty cool way to quantify if you did well or not. If you got zero victory points at the end of a scenario and you have no experience points to spend to upgrade your deck, well, maybe you didn't do so well, <laughs> you know? But with the victory points, if you got enough to get a card that you were looking to get, then I think that was a good, that's a good way to quantify that. Yeah, that that's a good point, Vase. Um, I mean, barring Dunwich, which has very, very skimpy victory points uh, awarded to you throughout the scenarios. Like there, there are scenarios you may only get like one or two and that's actually doing pretty well. So, so it's not always the best measurement of, of how well you do, but I think by and large, that's, that's a very valid point phase. But I do like the idea of, of, you know, recommending net decking to new, new players, especially those that have like a huge description of exactly how to play the deck, because there's some, there's some decks out there with no description and there's supposed to be like some combo or work with a certain card and you have no way of really knowing how to make it work or what to look for for an opening hand. So if you're a new player and you're looking to, to look up decks online to to build yourself 
or if you've never played a certain uh, investigator and you want to net deck in order to really make the best use, use of them, look for those decks on ArkhamDB that have descriptions on how to play the deck, how to pilot the deck, as they call it. Yeah, one deck that I would point out in that vein is um, Scott from the Mythos Busters put together a Ursula deck, and he's kind of really gone into detail about how the deck works and how the cards interact with each other and how you should kind of sculpt your hand at the beginning and how you play uh, play the deck throughout the course of the scenario. And he even goes into upgrade paths too, which I think is another important aspect too, because that can be pretty jarring. It, it was definitely jarring for me when I first started playing the game. It's like, well, what should I prioritize when I upgrade my decks? And, you know, as, as the the difficulty ramps up throughout the course of the campaign. Like, I don't know necessarily like, should I be upgrading my shrivelings first? Should I be upgrading the way I get clues first or, you know, like, or some combination of the two. That's a really good point. Yeah. And sometimes you get derailed and you've taken so much horror that now instead of the shriveling, you're like, man, I guess I got to upgrade to one of these cards that can soak some horror or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a good point too, is like, you kind of, kind of, go with the flow. And I know Nathan, you've kind of, um, kind of touched on that too in previous episodes. So, um, a couple episodes ago, Vase announced that he was going to give away a copy of the blood of Balshandor. So, Vase, who's our, who's our lucky winner? Well, we got a ton of responses, actually, for this contest. So there was a lot of interest regarding the book, or maybe people are just uh, kind of figuring out that Carolyn Friend the Botanist at gmail.com is not a fake email address. But, uh, yeah, the winner is Robert Huang. Hopefully I pronounced that right, Robert Huang. And, uh, yeah, he's looking forward to um, Amanda Sharp. Um his favorite class is Seeker. So the we asked the question to the listeners, which product are you looking forward to the most? And uh, he specifically was looking forward to one investigator, and that is Amanda Sharp. So that's pretty cool. Hopefully she works out the way that, uh, that you're expecting her to. And uh, we will be sending a copy of that book this week for you, for you. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations, Robert. So with that, why don't we go ahead and move our or move into our community spotlight, Nathan? You had um, you wanted to touch on music and ambience for your for your Arkham Horror games. Yeah, now there's there's a lot of great um, sources out there, and, and I think I've touched on this before. Um, you know, music makes a difference. I play it every time I play Arkham. Uh, Oftentimes I'll have 1920s jazz or I'll have hustle bustle of the city or something that fits. Um, for the, the Happy's Funhouse fan made scenario, I play like creepy clown music. For the Curse of the Rougarou, I play swamp. It's like called scary swamp sounds, but it's perfect. It's about a half an hour and you just hit repeat, but it's got gator growls and like water sounds and crickets and, and frogs. Um, especially for a lot of the Forgotten Age uh, scenarios. I did dripping water in the cave sounds or jungle sounds. But um, when I play soundtracks that people have actually gone out and made, Graham Plowman uh, has some fantastic stuff. And I had reached out to him uh, recently uh, and said, hey, I really like your stuff. 
you know, what can I do to um, listen to it or what have you. And he sent me a link. I'm pulling it up right now. Do, do, do. Boom. Um, he had said that the easiest way to find his, his stuff is, um, you know, HTTPS, etc. G Plowman. And we'll have, we'll have that link in the show notes. But gplowman.bandcamp.com. Uh, I think he said he's got all of his stuff up on there. Uh, you can find some some clips of it and stuff on YouTube to check it out. Put in Graham Plowman, uh, Arkham, or Cthulhu, and you can find some stuff that way. But I like to support people that you know add content, so um, you know do what you can. But really cool stuff. Really nice guy. And did we like talk to him about incorporating some stuff a while back? Uh, yes, but unfortunately, there are some legal issues not not with Graham yeah. specifically but with the uh with the YouTube bots like he okayed it and, and YouTube was like nope yep <laughs> yep so um but just really adds a lot um so definitely check out Graham Plavin's stuff fantastic uh he's also been playing more and more during the quarantine and posting up on the uh Facebook group so that's been fun to watch him like, hey, I just did this this scenario. What do you all think? And I've got questions. And I was like, ah, oh, I know who that guy. That's really cool. Um, I also wanted to quickly break in and, yeah, I wanted to break in and talk about Seth Oakman. Um, I'm also a really big fan of the fan-made uh, investigators. And years ago I found uh, some made by Soakman, S-O-A-K, Man, and I was like, Oh, I love these. He made eight, and he's taken those investigators and used them with um, Mansions of Madness and Arkham Horror, and, and of course, Arkham Horror, the card game. He ported them over and, and made them into playable cards. And I've been running them since I first saw them, but then I reached out because on Arkham Central, uh, there was a Seth Oakman who came out with the Blackest Pits campaign, or Blackest Pit campaign, and I was like, oh, this is a cool fan-made scenario. And Seth Oakman is close to Soakman. I wonder if it's the same person. So I reached out to him, and indeed it was, and we've been talking back and forth. Um, and he also just released the second part of the Blackest Pit campaign. But he literally wrote me uh, nine minutes ago and said, happy fourth, Nathan. I have updates for the investigators, uh, and he's kind of changed them and updated them after having played for a while with them. So very exciting stuff. Uh, we'll see if uh, if he's cool with us putting a link to those in the show notes as well. So a lot of fun stuff going on in the community for a spotlight. Um, and if you want, I can also end this whole shebang on some trivia. <laughs> I think what I'm going to do this week, we're, we're looking at doing some slightly different formats for trivia to make it, I guess, a little easier, a little more accessible. But um, for today, what I'm going to do is I have categories. So kind of like, um, you know, Jeopardy or what have you. So the winner of a particular question will then get to choose the next category 
uh, for the next question. The, the categories I have are images, so things that are in the picture, icons, which are going to be, you know, under the cost and the pips, quotes on the card, and then I have one special category with one set of cards called potpourri. So, uh, Nate, since um, your name is close to Nathan, why don't you go ahead and pick the first category? Uh, I will pick images for 200. Good, okay, and there's no point value, but that's great. That's great, appreciate that. Uh, okay, Vase, you might want to take yourself off muted so you can uh, get a chance at this. I'm ready, man. Here we go, here we go. Um, in the picture for On the Hunt Guardian card, how many footprints are in the picture? Three. Ooh, uh, you both got that at the same time. So, Nate, go ahead and give us another category. I was faster, so I get a point. That's cute. It is. It's also correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Uh, I mean, latency is a thing. But anyway, uh, I'm going to choose icons. Go visit iconics, y'all. All right. Scrine, a three pip upgrade. Um, what are the icons on this card? Willpower and intellect. Okay. Willpower and intellect. I'm sorry, were you saying it after him and the same things to be funny? <laughs> Is he right? Are, are, are we right? Uh, you're not going to get credit if you say the we said it at the same time. after somebody else. <laughs> he gets the point. I had no idea. I, don't, I can't remember what's crying, what the picture even the looks like. The answer is two intellect. I kind of feel like if Man from Lang uh, could have stayed a, a bit longer, he would have totally nailed it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Vase, let's shake things up. Uh, I'll let you go ahead and pick next category. Um, death by horror for 20, please. I, I don't know where the categories are. Where do I find them? Images, icons, quotes, or potpourri? Let's go with potpourri. Ooh, look mm -hmm. at you going potpourri. So, archaic glyphs, uh, your favorite, my favorite spell. Uh, do you remember any of the subtypes? Oh, my God. Um, oh, goodness. Isis, something Isis. Memory of Isis. Good. Um, um, vase, that's close. Um, um, not Minds in Harmony. Minds in Harmony? No, that's an ancient stone one. Oh, shit. Time to give you some clues. Um, guidings in one, prophecies in another. Guiding stones? Correct. Yes. Damn. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. question. That was good. Do you want to get any of the other ones? Prophecy foretold? Correct. Ah, oh, yes! Oh my god, I'm getting slaughtered. Two here. points for Nate. Uh, and you were both close on the uh, on the one, but it is technically uh, markings of ISIS. Good job. Uh, dang it. That was definitely not an easy question. I realized that, which is why I was, that was a good prepared one. to give you give you part of the the answer. Um, Nate, getting uh, an edge up that round. Go ahead and pick the next category. Images, icons, or quotes. I'll pick quotes this time. Quotes. All right, here we go. Bullets are one thing. 12-inch fangs, quite another. Oh, my God. Uh, custom ammunition? 
th- I think this is the the story asset from Ruguru. Oh god, I can't remember the name. I'll give you all a clue. It's from the core box. Oh goodness! <laughs> oh goodness! Uh, um, give me a read again. For those of you in the back, bullets are one thing; twelve-inch fangs, quite another. The answer is bulletproof vest. Oh, that makes sense. Yep. Nate, next mm. category. Uh, let's go with potpourri again. Potpourri was only the one. Okay, uh, but it was a, a multi-part, so I, so I put it on. And I'll go with images. Images. Kerosene. Your favorite flammable spell in mine. How many tentacles are in the picture? Eight. I'm going to go with six. Nate, closest to the correct answer. The correct answer was ten. You get a point. Oh, my God. All right. Nate, images, icons, or quote. Let's go with icons this time. Icons again. In the card, Cheat Death, which is a five-pip trick faded rogue card. What are the icons? It's intellect and willpower. I believe it's one wild icon. Correct, Nate. Damn. Base, you are getting crushed. I am. I'm. uh, (laughs) Once again, uh, Man from Lang does have his credit card on file with me, uh, connected to my Venmo. So had he been here, he probably would have done really well. Um, although I can't help but think that Matt Newman really crushed it um, when he got the the answer to what kind of car he drives and even the color to win that one. Oh um, man, come on! Nate, <laughs> images, icons, images, icons, or quotes. Let's go with quotes. I knew you were going to say that. Don't worry, she insisted. I can handle it. I've had worse. Hmm. Maybe, but what's the card? Ah, damn it. Don't worry, I can handle it. Uh, I'll give you a clue, it's a rogue card. Ooh. Quick thinking? <laughs> I'm just throwing names out there. That's alright, no one got that one, it was cunning. Um, let's go ahead and go with another image. Maybe this one will be easy because it's a it's a card from the base box. In vicious blow, what is someone uh, hitting over the head? Oh, it's like a snake creature, lizard creature. It's like reddish. Really, I thought it was a bayaki. It looks it looks like a snake creature. It looks like a. Oh man, like I was one of those say fangs of, because of the horns. It looks like one of those fangs of uh Oh it does have horns, yeah, Nathan's right. Of course he's right. He probably has the card sitting right in front of him. I was thinking it was Yeah. What? I, I'm thinking it's a night gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. yeah, that's that's totally right. Man we're down to And I even know the the image questions. because Harrison Guzman from the Facebook group <laughs> sent me a, a sticker that he drew of that of that card image. What? That's awesome. Uh, going back to icons, Quantum Flux, go. Oh, that's one oh, wild icon. There's one wild icon. Yeah, you both got that one. I said it first. Nope. All right, <laughs> next. Uh, what is this quote? Three. Here we go. What was that noise? 
Uh, we're gonna go with. Ah, oh, geez. Swift reflexes. No. Imagine uh, doing this podcast and you think that in your head. Tennessee Sour Mash. Any guesses, Nate? Um, you need to catch up. You're only four points ahead. <laughs> uh, dude, I got nothing. Uh, it is from the card called Paranoia. Oh, yeah. I would have never which guessed Which is that. a weakness. Yeah. And then the last question is kind of a fun one. And this is going to get us to our last community spotlight topic: the artist who did the who did the art for Patrice Hathaway. Let me Google that real quick. I, I'll give you a, a clue. She's famous. She's French, and she did a lot of the iconic art for Lord of the Rings. I already have the link pulled up. Are you googling the answer? No. Um, <laughs> he said ferociously. <laughs> I have a f- I'm just taking a wild shot in the dark. Ah. I also right. like how you butchered the name. So Magali Villeneuve. Uh, it is French, so the French would be able to say that better. Um, she is phenomenal. I listened to um, an old interview of hers on Cardboard of the Rings because she does a lot of the iconic art for that. But she also did, obviously, Patrice Hathaway. Um, she said a lot of artists started when they were young and that's all they did was art and they did it before they could talk or walk or whatever but she said she went with her family to go see Beauty and the Beast when she was 12 and couldn't stop thinking about the beast and you know the, the horns and the fur and the eyes and the stature and she just wanted to draw him so she just worked on drawing him and drawing him and then came down and showed her family and they were like where did you get that that is incredible and they just didn't know that she had that that kind of talent and then boom she's gone on and now she does 20 to 25 book covers or cards or magic card art or whatever for she does a lot with ffg um and we're gonna we're gonna link her uh website in the show notes as well but you can also google patrice hathaway card art to get her name that way so anyway phenomenal artist i want to see more of her stuff and i just wanted to give her a shout out oh yeah she has done a lot uh, of by the way nate you win four to zero Woo! Peace. good try wait whoa 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 i got a point for this one so i got no. that right with the artist no. No. I mean, you gotta I at least give him a point for the one he actually got right in the beginning. You know, I, I guess maybe I had lag because you both said it at the same time. But we'll go back and look at the. We'll do that thing where you you do the bullshit like this is what actually happened, and then you play it. So. Right, digitally enhance it. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, we need exactly. we we need to focus in on this image that's 480p and somehow turn it into 4K results. <laughs> Enhance. <laughs> Press enter on keyboard. Yeah, that's totally how that works. Cool, but uh, thank you everybody for listening. I know this was kind of a long, windy, weird episode where we were covering several topics. I am excited about Farcom. Is that how you say it? Farcom. Farcom. Just Farcom. 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 Um, Vase, you don't I'm have to be about, about it. 
<laughs> I'm excited about getting to play Barkham and talking all about that for an entire episode. Um, and I appreciate everybody here on the podcast taking the time to record. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we sign off real quick, Vase, you had a couple of little mentions you wanted to, to drop at the end of the episode. Is that right? Uh, are you talking about the, the games that we play on uh, Twitch? Uh, well, in addition to Twitch, we... I guess since I kind of was very vague about it. We are planning on doing a, another uh, Delta Green radio drama style playthrough. So so that'll be down the pipeline as well as our normal content. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Uh, as I alluded to earlier in the episode, I will try to get the, the uh, Pulp Cthulhu one shot up on our Patreon. So if you're curious about that at all, that'll be available after Farkham. That's going to be so much fun. So I'm very, very excited for that, too. I hope you guys really enjoy that. Um, I will probably, uh, depending on who's available, I'll probably pick a couple of other players, probably more than likely from our patrons. So if you want a chance to to play in the game, be sure you're uh, be sure you're a patron, and I will try to uh, try to uh, pick a couple of players depending on availability. Obviously, our hosts get top priority, so if they're available and they want to play, we're going to let them play, but otherwise, we will have at least one spot available to our patrons, if not more. So uh, so I'll probably draw that, uh, draw the winners uh, for that playthrough, uh, I think Thursday, because I think the game's Friday, but, but regardless, stay tuned for that. I will definitely announce it on Discord beforehand. And I think with that, we're, we're going to wrap things up today. So, so uh, thanks, guys, for, for enduring in this long episode. We hope it was, hope it was uh, entertaining for you. I've been your host, Nate, and I was joined with today. I am the man from Lang, host of the Whisper in Darkness YouTube channel. And I'm innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn. And Nathan, Jester of the Abyss, thanks for listening. I thought he was National Strudel competitor. I will machete the hell out of you, Dave. You stop. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, we have a winner to announce for the Blood of Preserva. <laughs> <laughs> oh, say the name of the book. Uh, Blood of Bashar. I'm sorry. I'm so, what was that? <laughs> do, do you want to say that again? Nate, do you want to try? I believe it's Balshandor. Ah, I could be wrong. That's what I said. But I'm pretty sure I'm right. And I'm <laughs> oh, usually nice. terrible at pronouncing I mean, that'll things. that'll work. So. Bail, 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 whatever you want to say.